That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, just about 24 hours from now, at the Downtown Athletic Club in New York, the Heisman Trophy will be awarded. The sports books all believe it'll be Jaden Daniels. I mean, the odds on it now, he's minus 1,400 to win the award. They know which way the voters are leaning. The sports books do. Michael Penix Jr. will not be your Heisman Trophy winner, likely. Probably the runner-up. Bo Nix probably going to finish third, if I have this handicap correctly. I'm here to ask you a fundamental question. How important is the award? How important is it that Bo Nix and the investment that Oregon made in getting him Heisman votes registers? Or is the victory for Oregon in the money it was spent and the marketing campaign that went on that recruits could see? They go to Oregon, they'll get behind you. I'm really kind of curious on how you see this award these days. Is it this great award that is given to the best college football player in America? Is it uh, just the marketing of the award that matters? Maybe you're here to tell me that the award itself, eh, it doesn't really hold any weight anymore. Gonzano, come on, give me a break. This is not like the Heisman Trophy when Bo Jackson won it or Herschel Walker or Archie Griffin multiple times. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you think about that. Heisman Trophy, what does it mean? And you tell me, because Bo Nix is not going to win this award. I don't think it goes his way. Vegas says uh, Jaden Daniels is going to win it, and Penix will be the runner-up, and Bo Nix will be third. I think that's how it's going to shake down. Marvin Harrison Jr. will be fourth. Um, you kind of know that that's the way it's going to go based upon sort of the uh, what you're hearing and what we see and sort of uh, Twitter can... I think uh, remove a lot of doubt as you watch the SEC footprint really just banging the drum for Jaden Daniels, which I don't really understand. Like to a certain extent, you know, uh, it was Hannibal Lecter I think who said it uh, who said it best. Um, you know, as uh, as Agent Starling was interviewing Hannibal, trying to find out about Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal was uh, in his own way trying to help her out, and he says, you know, he covets what he sees. What does he see? And, uh, you know, Jodie Foster's character uh, ultimately uh, figures out, like he's trying to say, hey, he, he covets what he sees. Like, that's true of sports as well. We covet what we see. 
we tend to elevate, whether it's a generation of players, we elevate what we see, what we are there for, right? The players that you saw playing become better than other generations because you saw them play. And the players that you see play on a regular basis, your regional players or the players that in athletes and teams that you see on television tend to be elevated for the same reason. And so the SEC voters, the voters on the eastern part of the United States, have traditionally not looked at Pac-12 players and have not treated them very kindly in, in award voting such as the Heisman Trophy. But I'm left, uh, you know, looking at the way this unfolds, and I'm left looking at Jaden Daniels, who has great numbers. Like, you know, you can't argue. He's got, you know, prolific numbers, really good quarterback, plays in a conference that, that gets a lot of attention, has a lot of voters in the South. Uh, has games that are televised in prime times on the eastern seaboard. And so you have like a lot of exposure for a player who is piling up numbers at a school that is playing within the top 15 in the college football playoff rankings. LSU, uh, pretty good team, not a great team, nowhere near the top four. But Jaden Daniels in LSU, really good offense, a lot of fun, entertaining. And at the same time, though, I kind of wonder about the narrative. If Michael Penix Jr. had played in the SEC, or if Bo Nix were still in the SEC, hadn't left Auburn for Oregon. And I kind of wonder if Penix is the best example of this, because if you put Michael Penix Jr. you know, at Alabama, or you put him at Georgia, does anybody believe that there's any way in hell he's not the Heisman Trophy winner? Like, if he's undefeated, if he has done what he has done for the Washington football program? Because I said it today, I was talking to John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group as uh, we were recording a podcast today, and I said, you know, you put Michael Penix Jr.'s season and Bo Nix's season and Jaden Daniels' season out there, and people want to compare statistics. They want to compare touchdown passes, completion percentage, yards. They want to look at things like that. That's not what I want to do when I'm comparing players and I'm trying to say who's the better player. I want to ask you, Who's the most valuable player? Not only the most valuable player in general, but the most valuable player to their team. And for me, this college football regular season, that MVP was Michael Penix Jr. Because I don't think Washington is better than 8-4 and four without him. Steven, am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong that Washington's 8-4 and four without Michael Penix Jr., but I think if the Ducks were without Bo Nix, they're probably 9-3, and 8-4 and four as well. Like I think that they both were that valuable to their team. Um... And I also agree with you that if one of these guys is in the SEC, it'll be interesting to see going forward with Washington, Oregon, and the Big Ten, will they get the respect in the Heisman Trophy market if their team goes 12-0? and 0? Will it be an automatic victory? Because you're right. If Bo it would Nick, be automatic. If Bo yeah. Nix is in, at Auburn right now, he's the automatic Heisman Trophy winner, not even a doubt. If Michael Penix Jr. is at you know LSU he's the and LSU's undefeated, he's by far the Heisman Trophy winner. So I wonder how it'll be you know, the upcoming seasons with Oregon and Washington going to the Big Ten. Uh, but you're right, man. Like, it is – on the West Coast, you have to have an incredible year or you have to be at USC to get the respect to win yeah. the Heisman Trophy. I think it's a great point about USC because you look back to last year with Caleb Williams and people will point to it and go, well, see, a Pac-12 quarterback can win the award. But you almost have to treat USC like it's Notre Dame, like it's a national brand that everybody gets to see because you have inherent advantages at USC with that kind of exposure. And I think Oregon tried to buy some of that marketing, 
tried to buy some of that exposure. I think if you look back, and I was paying attention to this in about week 9, 10, 11 of the regular season, all of a sudden, I do a lot of reading, right? And all of a sudden, the banners that I was seeing on, like, national websites, national publications, the, the banners were Bo Nix. It was Bodacious, and he was everywhere. And I could just feel Oregon going, we're going to invest, we're going pedal to the metal, guy's doing everything he can on the field, but we're going to do everything we can to try to elevate him. In the end, the biggest problem that Bo Nix had was that he didn't play in the SEC. And, you know, when you put him head-to-head against Michael Penix twice, and he loses that game twice, you have to kind of give the nod to Penix. So I think, you know, he, he loses that, and he's not in the SEC. But I'm going to just say, like, if Michael Penix Jr. is playing in the SEC, there's no way that he's not walking off with the Heisman Trophy in tomorrow's ceremony, but but, and he's not going to get it. But don't you think the the posters and the billboards did what they were supposed to do with Oregon and Bo Nix? Like, I don't necessarily think it's about the Heisman Trophy. I think it's about retaining players and just getting the Oregon footprint out there in the NIL world, saying, you know what, we have your back. If you want to stay at Oregon like Bo Nix did for an extra season— We'll invest in you, and we will you know, give you some money. We'll give you some you know, uh, time out there, give you some impressions out there in the country. Like I think it was more than just a Heisman push. I think it's more of a brand push by the University of Oregon, as they always have done. That, that's what Oregon's done. They've always pushed their brand, and I think they're doing that even more now for kids because they know how important it is in the NIL world. Like, hey, you got to be outside the box when you're trying to recruit these kids, whether it's from the transfer portal or retaining your own players. So, like, yeah, I think it helped with the Heisman a little bit, but I don't even think that was the ultimate goal for the Ducks was to put those those billboards out for Bo Nix. I think it accomplished exactly what it, what it wanted to do because, like you said, it was out there nationally. Nationally, people were talking about Bo Nix in Oregon, and I think that other kids were looking at that like, you know what, if I'm good in Oregon, yeah, I'll get some billboards out there and I'll uh, you know improve my stock. I asked Dan Lanning about that during one of our interviews earlier this season. You know, was that whole Heisman push – is it just about getting Bo Nix a Heisman Trophy, or can you sell that to other kids? And he agreed with you. I mean, Stephen, absolutely. He sort of underscored what you just said in that part of the the way that you are promoting your players is, you know, you can turn around to other recruits and go, look how we get behind our guys. And, and that matters. And, you know, it's really interesting, too, because I kind of wondered if part of Bo Nix's NIL agreement with Division Street might have included a Heisman push. Just bear with me. Bo Nix announces last offseason he's coming back for another year. Oregon unveils that billboard in you know the run-up to the season in a splashy way that was really interesting. And as I drilled down, I reached out to the billboard company that had that billboard, owned it in Manhattan, owned it in Dallas, they did confirm that the billboard was paid for by an outside entity. So this wasn't like the University of Oregon saying, we're going to market Bo Nix. I think it was Division Street. And so I kind of wonder if part of his NIL deal was that, hey, we're going we're gonna to launch a Heisman campaign for you, and here's what it's going to include. And if you decide to return, sign on the dotted line, this is an NIL deal more than anything. And I think you can sell that to other recruits. 503-417-7575. I want to really dive down and drill down on the Heisman talk. Does this award mean anything to you? What do you think Oregon really bought 
with the investment in Bo Nix in the Heisman campaign. And if Michael Penix Jr. is playing in the SEC, are we even having this damn conversation about Jaden Daniels? You tell me. Let's go to the phone lines. Dave is in Portland. Dave, welcome to the show. Howdy. Um, I think the answer, you sort of just touched on it. I think either Bo or Penix would have won it if they had had an outstanding final game. But neither one of them had, well, Bo had a decent game, but they lost. If Bo had, if the Ducks had won and, they, and it exploded, I think he would have won. I, I don't think it's so much the SEC now, but I also agree that, that it's all that promo. Look what Michael James just said when he got inducted. He said, I couldn't see myself in no Adidas. I wanted to see myself in Nikes. And so all of that is the promo. Now, with the NIL, I don't have a clue how that's going to tip things because I don't know which dollars they're going to buy or how many dollars you have to have to, to make the buy. But if NIL wasn't there, all that money that Oregon spent on Bo Nix, that's great because it's a promo, and it didn't really matter that now that he didn't win. I just don't yeah. think it matters at all. Yeah, and I think I think Nix finishes third. I think Penix finishes second. I think Jaden Daniels wins it. It's not how my ballot went. Um, and uh, I, I'm not supposed to reveal my ballot, but I'm just going to tell you that's not the order that I had the three people in because I didn't think they belonged in that order. I ranked the players in the order that I would have picked them had I uh, you know, been ranking who had the best season. And it's hard for me when one of the players is 13-0 and it has a conference championship and beat the other guy head-to-head in two games. And you're looking over at Bo Nix and you're going, hey, it's a great year. You had great numbers. But head-to-head, you got outplayed. And then you look at Jaden Daniels and you go, okay, your team had multiple losses in the SEC. Really good offensive year. But, man, Jaden Daniels was in the game all the time, fourth quarter, third quarter, and Penix Jr. and Bo Nix were not. Like, you know, there were a couple games where Bo Nix came out at first series of the third quarter, you know, and didn't play anymore. And part of that was because Oregon was beating Portland State 81-7, to but I just kind of wonder, you know, if, if Jaden Daniels uh, were playing against Portland State, does LSU leave him in the game, let him get 700 passing yards? I kind of think that that's what they would have done. I mean, it was just a different philosophy. The, the truth of the matter is, like, if you're really pointing out, like, who is the best college football player in America? It's probably some, um, you know, it's probably some offensive line and um, lineman in the SEC. Or maybe it's some Big Ten defensive tackle. Or maybe you're talking about, you know, the tight end at Georgia, Brock Bowers, who got hurt in the early part of the season. NFL's just salivating over that kid. You know, I think there are probably a lot of football players like that NFL scouts were be they're going to look at the Heisman ceremony. They're going to go like, "Hey, that's cool they're giving the Heisman to like who they think the best quarterback is or who had the best year." But the NFL draft's going to look a lot different. And I find it like really interesting that NFL general managers will often take the Heisman winner and go, "Okay, that's cool that you gave him the Heisman, but he's like the sixth player picked or if that, and sometimes not even in the first round." And to me, that's where the award that I vote in, right? I'm voting in this damn thing. That's where the award loses its credibility. And, and so I, I think, the, you know, these three guys that are going to be at the top tomorrow when they announce the awards, there's no embarrassment there. But there have been some embarrassing picks over the years. 
Don't you think that the way the sport has evolved and into the college football playoff and basically how the bowl games have almost become irrelevant, it's all about getting into that college football playoff, into the semifinals, that's kind of downgraded the importance of the Heisman Trophy because you're right, back in the 90s, early 2000s even, Heisman Trophy was so important. I think when you look at this season, Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr., you're like, yeah, it would have been nice to win the Heisman, but that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to get to that college football playoff. That's what everyone was shooting for. Where LSU, they lose some games. They lost the first game of the season to Florida State, and then they go off and they lose to Alabama, and they have really nothing truly to play for. They can't win an SEC title. They can't go to a New Year's Six game. So what do they have left? They have the Heisman. It was like the third or fourth thing on the agenda, but that was the best thing that they can really shoot for to boost their brand and boost up Brian Kelly, boost up his recruits. Right. So I kind of think it, it goes down to that where it's like, Oregon, Washington, yeah, they wanted the Heisman, and it was about that, but they were really trying to get to the cultural playoff. As soon as they can't do that in LSU's case, that's when they start pushing for the Heisman. Yeah, look, there's great players that have been right around you know, the Heisman finalist list in, in every year. Like, you go back to 2015. 2015 is a great example. Derrick Henry wins the Heisman Trophy from Alabama. Christian McCaffrey was second. Deshaun Watson is third. I mean, the Heisman... Trust got it right, right? Like, the, all of those guys are great football players. Like, there's no wrong answer on the board there. But you don't have to go very far beyond that. Like, 2012, it was Johnny Manziel, Manti Teo, Colin Klein. Like, come on. Like, there were way better football players that were playing football in 2012 than those three guys. And they're, you know, guys that had better NFL careers. And Eric Crouch won it in 2001. And, you know, Rex Grossman and Ken Dorsey were the runner-ups. Like, there's been some really bad picks over the years, but I also know that this award in recent years, you know, if you go back, it has gone quarterback, quarterback, wide receiver, quarterback, 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 quarterback. That's, you know, since 2016, all quarterbacks and one wide receiver. And that's what happens in this award. And never mind that, like, you got guys in the NFL like, you know, Joey Bosa, it, who, who you probably look back and you go, oh, my gosh, that guy was like the best player that came out of that draft. And you look back and you go, hey, um, this award is really not about the best co- college football player in America. This award is about, like, the best notable player playing for a top 15 team that likely plays in the eastern seaboard or in the south of the United States. There's such a disadvantage you have if you're a player on the West Coast. Mark's in Portland. Mark, welcome to the conversation. Hey, how you going? I I got a little comparison in the in the NFL right now. If you look at the passer rating stats, Brock Purdy and Dak Prescott are the two leaders. But <laughs> if either one of those gets to the Super Bowl, are you going to take them over Mahomes? And the answer to me is no. And that's Mahomes is Michael Penix Jr. this year. Yeah. I mean, he's won every game. Like you said, he's the most valuable to his team. Bo Nix uh, had a uh, a uh, division they, they basically told him if you win this game uh, against Washington and avenge your loss you're going to be the Heisman Trophy winner so he doesn't deserve it um, and uh, the other guy's a dog chasing his tail John he's perfect for fantasy football he's, he's in the game because his defense wasn't that good this year and he racked up some great stats but like you said as, as Vince Lombardi said winning isn't everything it's the only thing so yeah. Michael Penix Jr. to me, it, he's the clear choice to me. I don't, I mean, but you're right. He's not in the SEC, so he's not going to get the award. Yeah, he's going to, Penix is going to end up second. Bo Nix is going to end up third. Um, Jaden Daniels lost three games. 
They lost to Alabama, 42-28. They lost to Ole Miss, 55-49. And they lost to Florida State, 45-24. Those are his three losses. I look back at their season. I look back at, you know, the games they played against Georgia State and Florida and Army and Auburn and Missouri and Arkansas. And I'm looking back and I'm going, did did they? Like, if you just replace Jaden Daniels with Tyler Shuck, okay? Average kind of pedestrian quarterback by college standards. No, no offense to the kid. If you just replace him with that guy, is their record any different? I still, I don't think so. And and I, I'm looking at Michael Penix Jr. and I, I think they're like eight and four without Penix. Think, look at all the close games Washington played in that he won. And I look at Bo Nix and I disagree a little bit with anybody who says Oregon would be like, you know, a lot worse without Bo Nix. Look at the scores of their games. I think Oregon wins. It has about the same record that they have right now without Bo Nix. So I, to me, Penix was the best player. He's the guy who put his team over the top, but the voters in the South, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to see it. Uh, let's, go to, uh, let's go to a break here. We'll come back. we got a guest. Yogi Roth's going to join us, by the way, from New York City. He's at the Downtown Athletic Club for all of this hoopla. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network, next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Heisman Trophy will officially be given away tomorrow. Seen in New York today. Heisman finalists uh, in Manhattan. Yogi Roth joining us from the road. Pac-12 Network analyst joining us now. Yogi, you in New York City. What's the scene, man? Oh, it's great. Coach Aliotti's here. He's with his wife on vacation. He stumbled right into the uh, the media room at the Heisman. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we we took a picture next to the trophy and, you know, just got to catch up. But it's, it's cool, man. I've been here, I don't want to say seven or eight times for the Heisman, for being here with Marcus and Christian and last year and, you know, all, all the years somebody from the West Coast comes out here and, and now as a voter it makes it even more fun and knowing these guys when they're at the Elite 11 and 16 and seeing them, you know, for the first time in a while, like whether it's Jaden Daniels this year or T.J. Stroud last year, um, Bryce Young, like it, it, it's cool to watch their growth and it's a real celebratory couple of days. Now, I saw photos of the guys kind of just uh, making the rounds down there. Like, how much hoopla is there? A lot of photo ops, a lot of uh, parading the finalists around? Yeah, no, it's, it's big time. I mean, I, I can remember, John, my, uh, one of my roommates in college was Larry Fitzgerald, and I remember when he came. And it was, it was the first time I'd known anybody that went to the Heisman. He, well, grew up watching it. And he came back, and it was just like, it was crazy, you know, the, the trips and the tours and the pictures. And then to, to watch Liner and I came when Reggie won it uh, as a member of the FC staff and saw really kind of behind the curtain a little bit. And now as a, you know, as an analyst coming out, uh, every year it could be the same exact schedule, but it, it lights you up the, the same amount every time because all of these young men put in so much time. They've all gone through uh, adversity they never could have expected, whether it's all three quarterbacks are transfer quarterbacks and all of them transferred for 
different reasons, right? Whether it's the coaching thing that was going on at Arizona State, whether it was Bo and just trying to reset or panics and his injuries. So I, I love that because they have a greater appreciation, I think, even more for the craft than they did when they began that journey. So then with all the photos and all the cameras and all the media, uh, they all had their own media station today, which was which was really cool with you know, 10 to 20 different people huddled around them, uh, just taking pictures, taking video, asking questions. It, it was a great moment for them to sit in it because they weren't being asked questions about a respective defense or a game plan. It was, it was just about them and their story. Jaden Daniels probably going to win this thing. And I have a vote. You have a vote. I'm not asking you to reveal your ballot. But he's probably going to win this thing based on his stats. But I feel like Michael Penix Jr. was the MVP of college football. He was the most valuable player to his team. Like, you take Penix off Washington, Yogi, that's like a four or five loss team. Like, I just, I'm struggling a little bit with the award, even though I vote in it, and even though I kind of know it goes to a quarterback on the, you know, a team that's highly ranked and somebody who has numbers. But the SEC part of this is dragging me down a little bit. Help me feel better about what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. I mean, it's it can be challenging and frustrating for, for a lot of people. I mean, it's important for me as a voter, I don't know how you do it, but I've got a, a scale that I look at when I even evaluate it. You know, to me, it's really important to, to do the homework when it comes to that. Uh, so I'm with you. And, and the first thing that I look at when I'm evaluating Eisen Trophy and, and where I'm going to put my vote is how do they do on the grandest of stages? What do they do um, in terms of competitive dominance and consistency in, in elite big-time moments? And I'm with you. you know, Michael Penix Jr. has, has done that uh, more than the other two, two, two quarterbacks, at least, that are up for it. And I think everybody would agree that Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to be fourth among the, among the vote tomorrow night. And, and I, I agree with you. you know, I think that the Heisman Trophy can have an impact on that in terms of the, they give out. You, know, you get your ballot the Monday after the final regular season game as did I, and I still hate that because uh, it can be controlled by the award. And I wish they waited until after all the games were played, championship games included, to send out that ballot because it just begins, uh, you know, the campaigning for these guys when the regular season is over, and that happened to Jaden Daniels, and he had a hell of a season. I mean, his downfield accuracy on deep balls is, is just ridiculous when you look at the ball when it travels over 20 yards, the area that he really tried to improve upon. And he's grown a ton. Uh, he's led his team to a lot of big moments. If he didn't get hurt in the Bama game, who knows what would have happened. So I, th- I think, you know, there's a fair case for them. But where I net out on this one is that when, when the numbers and the stats are skewed dramatically towards one player, in certain years, I buy that. Like when Johnny won it, Johnny Menzel or RG3 won it with multiple losses, or even last year with Caleb when he won it with multiple losses, I get that. But this year, I, I don't because of – what Michael Penix and Bo Nix had to go through in terms of the competitiveness of their games, the competitiveness of the league this year. And then when the moment was asked to be met, Michael Penix Jr. met it every time. Look at the Oregon game, the audible. Look at the Oregon State game, 158 left. is a back shoulder throw in the rain. You were there. And, yep. you know, it's a great throw to Rome, and it's game over. It's the audible um, in the Apple Cup at the line of scrimmage and the end around. I mean, there's a lot of moments that he had to meet and he didn't flinch. And, and I think the last thing I go back, at least for my vote, to probably tell where, where it went, but I, I go back to being undefeated. And when I was coaching at SC, it, it did not uh, glance by me how challenging it is as a quarterback to lead an undefeated team. Because every week, the boulder gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
you know, when, you know, your bubble gets burst a little bit and you lose a game and then it's, you know, all right, let's go attack this thing the rest of the way. It's a different approach than it is when you're undefeated. It just naturally is. So I think Michael Penix Jr. has handled uh, the pressure extremely well. Um, at times he didn't play great. I mean, you could look at a certain couple of games and see that. But when his best was needed, he met it. And to me, I go to the definition of the award every year, which is the outstanding college football player whose performance best exhibits the pursuit of excellence with integrity. And I think his performance, Michael Penix Jr., when needed, defines that award. And that's why, you know, I, he, he was my vote. Um, it, it really came down to that final game between him and Bo Nix. I would have went either way uh, based on the performance in that, on that stage. And I thought Michael delivered on the grandest of stages in the most viewed game in the history of the Pac-12 title games, Penix, Penix showed up. So we'll see how it shakes out tomorrow. I think I'm with you. It sounds like uh, everybody here expects Jaden Daniels to win it just based on the media and the attention he got today. I mean, it was it was pretty telling, but we'll see. And at the end of the day, uh, what an honor for, for those guys to even be in New York. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network analyst, is with us. Yogi, uh, you mentioned all three of the QBs are transfers. They all have a little different stories. Can we unpack them a little bit? Penix and his injury history, Bo and Auburn, Jaden Daniels was in the Pac-12 and went to the SEC. Um, which guy benefited most from the change of scenery, and, and how different are their stories really in your eyes? I, I don't know if I can give you an answer on who benefited the most because they all benefited greatly. Uh, let's take a look at Jaden first. I can remember him at the Elite 11, and he got hurt there. Uh, and then he got thrust into the spotlight at Michigan State. We all remember that fourth quarter comeback with uh, you know him and Herm Edwards and that team. And you look at the pandemic year, and ASU was set up uh, to win the league, to make a real run, at least in, in my eyes. And the pandemic happened. The whole team uh, kind of had it for a month, it seemed like. And then, of course, all the off-field stuff with him and recruiting. And I thought that he he probably wore the brunt of the criticism when he left. Right, everybody was saying uh, our locker room is better. It's addition by subtraction. I'm sitting there saying, "What? Like, have you ever met Jane Daniels? I mean, he's a phenomenal young man. I mean, he's come from a challenging background, um, and he's just competed, you know. And and yeah, he doesn't look the part all the time because he came into college at 170 pounds and started as a true freshman. But God, he worked at it. I mean, he really did. He's an awesome, thoughtful you know, creative, artistic young man. I mean, he's not the alpha that's going to give you the, the, the Tim Tebow or Bo Nix type of speech. Like, that's just not his personality. And I think when he went down to the SEC, we had him this summer as a counselor at the Elite 11. He, he and Michael Penix were both counselors. Uh, I asked him, I said, what's the difference between the leagues? And he goes, you know, skill positions, uh, I still give it to the pack. Uh, the, the front, obviously, is where the SEC is known for. But he goes, it's still the same game. You know, the fans are, you know, a different level, and that, that stadium is really cool. But, you know, it's still football. And so I think for him, like, a, it was a complete reset. I think when you look at Bo and, and both Michael, those two, I, I was able to do a feature on them on the Pac-12 Network this, this summer where I spent a bunch of time with them and people really close to them to, to talk into their journey. And for Bo, he came to Eugene sight unseen. He just wanted to go to a place that had a chance to win and a place for him to have an opportunity to be the best version of himself. And as he shared with me many times, and I'm sure with you, just to go play with joy because the, the wonderment, the, the joy of the sport was, was, was lacking, you know. And as I interviewed his parents, and they're in tears in this interview, they go to a story that I think all Oregon Duck fans should hear where they talk about the game against Georgia. And 
he throws a couple interceptions, and after the first one, you could see it online, uh, Dan Lanning meets him on the field. And he didn't say, what did you see? He didn't say it was your fault. He didn't come down on it. He said, hey, I love you. We'll be good. Don't worry. And Bo said that was the first time he ever felt that. Well, cut to the end of the game as they're going through the tunnel, and, and Patrick Nix, Bo's dad, is crying as he's telling me this story. He thought that the fans were going to boo Bo because they didn't know Bo. It was his first game there. He clearly didn't play at the level that everybody had hoped or expected from the beginning. And instead, he said, all the fans, and I get the chills sharing this, John, all the fans were cheering, saying, don't worry, Bo, we got your back. Next time, next game, we got you. And Patrick Nix was saying, God, that, that didn't happen at our previous school. It was the other way. So the fan base really welcomed them. And since that point, Bo said he, he never played with more joy in his life, big reason why he came back for another year. And then here's Michael Penix Jr., who shared with me that he was on the floor of his apartment in Indiana, praying and crying to himself before every game the year before that he transferred, that he wouldn't get hurt in 2021. He's just praying that, like, oh, when I go play today, I hope I, I don't get hurt. You can imagine if you were doing that for every one of your shows, you wouldn't be the best version of yourself. He knew that. And then when he made the change, he was able to be the best version of him and himself and play free and have fun. And another reason why he came back for another year to UW in the city of Seattle, I just got done talking to him about the power of Seattle and what it's done to him to be in that community. So – I think all three of them hit the reset button. Uh, all three of them needed them because the expectations were too much or the injury became too much. And, and it gave them new life and it built a real legacy, for, I think, for all of them within the quarterback room and the facility at all their respective universities. Give me an idea because Oregon marketed Bo heavily. And I suspect part of that was – they could tell all recruits, hey, you come to Oregon, you have great season, we're going to get behind you. What is this award worth to a school winning this award? And do you agree with that sentiment that, you know, Oregon, yeah, some of this was about promoting Bo, but this was also a message to all of Oregon football and branding for all of Oregon football? Um, I think if you have the right person that can handle it, um, yeah, you go all in. You know, Bo was the right guy, much like Michael Penix Jr. was the right guy. And both schools started campaigns in the off season. Uh, both had different styles of their campaigns. And yeah, you're right. They definitely uh, helped out the university in their branding and recruiting and their national, you know, national brand. But I don't, I don't think you do it if it's not grounded in some truth. You know, like I don't think you do it if. You know, uh, let's just take, like, Will Rogers, right? Like, he's rumored to go to, say, the Washington. You know, I don't think you do that national campaign in the preseason for that. You know, I don't think you do that if SC gets a portal quarterback. I don't think you, you do that in the offseason if Oregon gets a portal quarterback. Like, I think it has to be the right guy so it lands. Like, there's a reason I think Oregon can do anything they want marketing-wise, but they didn't do the New York City billboard at all since Joey Harrington, right? Like, they didn't do it with Herbert. They didn't do it with every quarterback that came through. Like, I think you have to pick and choose. So so the the message lands and the marketing of it lands. Uh, but you're right. Like, if, you know, Bo Nix wins or loses the last, you know, call it seven months or whatever it's been, six months have been huge for Oregon. And and he's a big part of that. And, and he should be celebrated. And he has been celebrated because of all the, you know, not only who he is as a player, but also all the NIL things that have happened with him and the world that we're in in college football. But I, I would not advocate every school in the country who has a really talented quarterback to 
get a billboard in, in New York City. I think it'll just land on deaf ears. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network Analyst, is with us. The bowl season's upon us. It'll mean a lot to some of the schools and fan bases, not so much to others. But let's start with Washington in this playoff. Um, how important is it for the Huskies to uh, throw their best punch? And what do you think of the matchup with Steve Sarkeesian in Texas? I love the matchup on a ton of levels. Um, the storylines, we, we played them last year in the Alamo Bowl, but now they get cranked up even more with Sark and Texas and Washington and Kalen. Uh, I think you also look at these offenses. Uh, they're as creative as you'll see in the country, uh, and they're and they're similar. I'm a big fan of offenses that give the ball to players, skilled players on the move. You look at Bama in 2020; they did it as good as anybody in the last decade. Well, I challenge that now with what Washington did this year and at times last year. I mean, those playmakers are so dynamic, and they are going to stress the daylights out of Texas. Sark. I was just talking to uh, our friend Softy about it on his show earlier. You remember his first game as the head coach at Washington. They, they played LSU. Go back and watch the first drive because it was boom, 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 touchdown. You're thinking, oh, wow. And Scott Woodward at the time, the athletic director at UW, turned to one of his colleagues and said, yeah, I think we got the right guy. And I say that of, like, both of these teams, their first couple drives will be scripted, and they'll be a thing of beauty. Like, I cannot wait to watch that and get down to, to New Orleans with Ashley Adamson and our crew just to kind of see what, what it's like in person on the field. And then the storyline that we'll get no play will be the defensive. Like Pete Kwiatkowski and this Texas defensive front will try to get after Michael Penix Jr. You know that about him if you track his history. Co-coordinators at UW, they've got this side of the ball playing really impressive football since the Oregon game the first time. Uh, they're finally healthy. Tuli Latuli Nasanoa is a player that isn't getting enough discussion around what he can do in the interior on that defensive front. Braylon Trice's numbers aren't off the charts, but his effort when you watch every snap, he's impacting quarterbacks, along with Zion Tupelo for two and company. So I, I love the game. I think they're just two of the more dynamic offenses in America. I love the play callers of it and the drama. Uh, it was in the Rose Bowl, and I personally felt like Washington should have been a number one seed. Uh, you look at the three ranked wins Michigan has, and two of them fired their offensive coordinator this year. I'm just, I just not that impressed with what they've done. Uh, when you comp it to the, the talented Pac-12 that it was this season and the competitiveness that UW had to have to meet every week. And so for that, I say that because I feel for the fans because they've had to go to Vegas, down to New Orleans, and, and possibly the, the national title versus an easier flight to L.A. But that is what it is. And, uh, and we're in for a treat, though. When it comes to the game, we're in for an absolute treat in the, uh, in the semis. I like Washington over Texas. I like Alabama over Michigan. Do you line up with that? Yes or no? It's it's hard. Like it, 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 that would have been if I was interviewing the committee, I would have asked them elements of that around Bama because Bama against Auburn was not Bama against Georgia, right? And Texas against Oklahoma State was not Texas in some of their other games. So I'm with you on the Washington front. I agree with that. Uh, on the Bama thing, I don't know. Uh, give Nick Saban a month, and he's he's pretty impressive. We know they're a physical defense and. And they're going to have to stop the run against a really veteran-laden Michigan, you know, front and run game. And I'm a big J.J. McCarthy fan. I love the way that he competes and plays and really operates that system with efficiency. I'd love it to be Michigan UW, uh, but I don't know. I don't know how Michigan will handle the, the duality, which is Jalen Milrow and, and how active he is. And I haven't seen enough consistency from Bama to feel really confident about it. We've seen enough history from Nick Saban to be confident about it. Uh, but I don't think that's enough to kind of 
roll with them. So I, I don't know. I'd probably pick Michigan. Uh, I'd love to see a classic Michigan UW game in the title just because. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if, if really any four of these teams won the national championship. Yeah, you hit on something there because you start talking about coaches and prep time. Is Saban the guy that you think has the biggest advantage with the extra prep time, or are all these guys so good that that doesn't really matter? I think they're all really good. I mean, you got a body of work in Michigan in terms of like where they haven't had success in the playoff. You can criticize that, uh, I guess, if you're in a nitpick and rank who's the best. Uh, UW's never been on this stage. Texas hasn't been on this stage. So I think there is something to Bama having – been there before uh i think that helps a little bit but when i look at kaylin DeBoer and his staff and again i go back to like the opening drive of every game like these teams are all game plan teams you know it's, it's a reason why i think air raid teams have struggled when they play if you chart back air raid teams after a you know they play an opponent if they had a bye or an extra week or look at oklahoma when they've been in the playoff like some some time to really prepare for that certain type of offense hasn't voted well for the air raid necessarily. I, I think for these schemes, I mean, these are these are all game plan teams. And, and I think we're going to see elite coaching. I really do. I think it's going to be hopefully clean games. I don't expect a blowout in, in any of these ball games. I think the UW, if, if there was a team that had a chance to blow somebody out, uh, it'd be them because of their explosive ability. And all of a sudden, boom, you could be down a couple scores. But and, and, you know, this Texas secondary is going to be challenged. I'll be curious to see what Pete Kwiatkowski does. We've seen him do a lot in his tenure. We've seen him attack teams. We've seen him drop eight and make you earn it. If, if I was going to guess, I think that Texas is going to drop eight and say, all right, Mike, go pick us apart, and we'll try to mix in a couple unique pressures, kind of like what Utah did when they played Washington earlier in the season. But ultimately, man, I, I don't know how, how beneficial it will be this year. If you had to give a nod to, te- to Bama because of the experience, I think it's, it's appropriate and fair. But I, I really am a big fan of all these staffs. Yogi Roth from the Big Apple. Enjoy your evening there and your weekend, Yogi. Thanks for joining us. Hi, brother. Anytime. Talk to you soon. There he is. Yogi Roth from the Downtown Athletic Club. Heisman ceremony tomorrow. Here's how it's going. Jaden Daniels, one. Penix, Jr., two. Bo Nix, three. Uh, Marvin Harrison, Jr., four. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Stephen, do you remember Roy Firestone having a show? I don't remember the show, but I just remember uh, Roy Firestone, ESPN. Okay, so you remember Firestone, I had no idea, he's like 70 years old. But he he started as a sports anchor in Miami and then moved to Los Angeles. And then you're right, he did kind of a ESPN show. It was like this interview show called Sports Look. And then it, they named it Up Close later. You probably saw it that way. But he had that, uh, you know, he had that interview show. And, and then, you know, Jim Rome had his own show that came kind of, it was similar to Roy Firestone's show in that there was like a, there was a sit-down element to it, and it was this conversation. And do you remember when Jim Everett and and uh, and Jim Rome got into it? Oh, I do. Yeah, that is uh, one of the classic moments in uh, interview history. He called him Chris Everett. 
And then he said, you call me Chris again. And then what are you supposed to do if you're Jim Rome? Like you're, you, you, you got know. to do it at that point. Chris. And so then uh, he ends up <laughs> wrestling around the set with Jim Everett, quarterback of the Rams. I, it got me thinking about something. I saw another clip where Mike Tyson was doing an interview with Joe Rogan. And Tyson and Rogan got into it because Tyson was telling a story and Rogan started laughing at him. And Tyson was like, that's not funny. And then Tyson, it was younger Mike Tyson. He's get, and he starts to get mad at Joe Rogan. And it got me thinking, like, what professional athlete would you least want to piss off in a situation where you are interviewing them face-to-face? Like, and, you know, I told the story the other day about Rasheed Wallace telling me that he was going to knock my block off if I didn't get out of his face. And then I kind of knew I'd, I had to stand there. I couldn't back down. Because if I backed down, I was going to lose the respect of the other media members and the players who were in the area. Like, you just kind of, you're like, okay, I'm going to stand here. And, you know, if he throws a swing at me, we're going to we're gonna just see how this goes. And and uh, which player, the which athlete, anyone in sports, would you least want to piss off? Well, Tyson's got to be up there because you know he has a screw loose. Like, you know, <laughs> for all the Tyson is, it's, I, I think it's any type of fighter, like a UFC fighter, MMA fighter. Just because I feel like you know what, if you're going in the in the octagon and you are fighting for a living, I feel like you gotta you know you're a little crazy there. So I think them uh, that would be number one on my list is basically any MMA fighter. Um, and then after that, it would be like uh, you know a guy like Miles Bridges who has some domestic stuff going on with his girlfriend. Mm. Like those kind of people, I would not want to make uh, mad. How about a Jamal Adams situation where you just kind of there's just there's a like you're right about the UFC fighters because there's kind of a stray dog element to the to the uh, industry like you know you kind of I I said something to somebody today I was uh you know I I'm, I was having coffee with Alex Molden the former Oregon defensive back and I was talking to him we we're talking about wrestlers and I said wrestlers are different wrestlers are just you know there's just something different about wrestlers there's a certain discipline and a certain amount of uh toughness that you have to have as a wrestler that you don't want to kind of mess with and wrestlers have seen some stuff right you know they're you know nobody's feeling good because they're all cutting weight and all that there's some of that in UFC as well I also think like you know I ran it last night we were at Moda Center for Dave Chappelle Anna and I went to the Dave Chappelle show at Moda Center and I ran into Adamic and Sue on the concourse and I saw Adamic and Sue up close and I was like yeah you wouldn't want to mess with that guy either and you know, I've interviewed him, and we've, we're on good terms, but he's not a guy you'd want to mess with either in a situation like that. All right, Punch and Audio's coming up. We have the best sound around. Plus, if you're an Oregon fan wondering why they're playing Liberty, we have the real answer in the 4 o'clock hour. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. University of Oregon will play Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl. I gotta tell you a story about this. It's a little backstory to Oregon and the Fiesta Bowl. I was at the Civil War football game on that Black Friday after Thanksgiving. That's what Black Friday is. But after Thanksgiving, that Friday after Thanksgiving, I'm at Autzen Stadium for the Civil War game. And I'm in the press box, 
at Autzen, and before the game kicked off, I walked over to the uh, coffee machine that they have there at Autzen Stadium, and I was going to get a cup of coffee. It's a cold night. And in the press box, they kind of have this coffee station, and it's got regular coffee, it's got decaf, it's got hot water. It's fancy. And uh, I'm filling up with regular coffee because I don't see the point with decaf or hot water. And this guy comes over in this bright-colored jacket that only, like, the bowl representatives could wear. Almost looks like a Hall of Fame jacket, but it, on its on his lapel, it's got the logo of the Fiesta Bowl. And uh, he introduces himself. Hi, I'm Joe McGee. That wasn't his name, but, you know, I'm Joe McGee with the Fiesta Bowl. And uh, he says, uh, you know, I, I read your work. John, nice to meet you. And I I didn't know what to say to the guy because I was getting my coffee and I was kind of a little bit surprised to see the Fiesta Bowl guy hanging out at the Civil War football game. And then he says, uh, we might be seeing the Ducks in the Fiesta Bowl. And I, uh, at the time, I was thinking Oregon is, you know, obviously going to play this game against Oregon State. And then if they win that game, they're going to the Pac-12 championship game. They're not thinking Fiesta Bowl. They're thinking Vegas and then possible birth in the playoff. But the Fiesta Bowl guy, you know, because this is what bowl representatives do, is out in Eugene for the game, and he's schmoozing, and he's getting to know media, and, you know, he's having a conversation with me. I should get the guy on the show because I feel bad. I kind of blew him off, Stephen, because I I wasn't thinking – Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl, I just, I kind of politely said, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And I turned and got back to the game because I got to be honest, I it, historically have not spent much time schmoozing with the bowl reps because I don't really get it. You know, I don't get, you know, other than being polite to them, I don't really understand what's what this conversation is about. And then now I'm looking at Oregon playing Liberty and I'm like, oh, that Fiesta Bowl guy is probably going, now, where's that bald-headed guy that blew me off when I said, you know, Oregon might be playing in the Fiesta Bowl? Um, it, but I never really found a lot of use for the bowl reps, and I don't mean that with any disrespect. Like, if you are a bowl representative listening to this show, I understand you, you're an ambassador for your game, whatnot, but I most often have run into those bowl reps over by the coffee machine or maybe at halftime when they're getting a slice of cheesecake. You know, they they got the cushiest job ever. That's the best job ever. You're working for a nonprofit, traveling around the country, wearing that jacket. You know, you're a big shot. You know, you're uh, you go on junkets. You get to uh, eat uh, eat cheesecake in the press box and watch college football. It's a pretty good gig. Well, Oregon will be playing Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl, and a lot of Oregon fans are not happy with that matchup and you know just a really brief synopsis of what is liberty liberty it was a university that or is a university founded by uh, the reverend jerry falwell old jerry not young jerry and uh, in the seventies and and that university now boasts an enrollment of sixteen thousand and another hundred thousand plus who are online only students and I make the joke that it's like a bunch of homeschool kids have gone to college. Well, they're still homeschooling. They're, you know, a lot of virtual classes. It's a money-making machine. Liberty is in the business of education. And now their football program has elevated from lower division, 
you know, FBS football to FCS, major college football. They played a terrible schedule in Conference USA. They play schools like Western Kentucky and New Mexico State, and then played New Mexico State again, and they played zero Power 5 conference opponents, Liberty did this season, and ESPN's Power Index says that Liberty played the worst schedule of any major college football program in America. Softest schedule, went 13-0. and Well, here's Oregon in this game. Now, how did Oregon end up in this game in the Fiesta Bowl against Liberty? John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, and I kicked us around today. I'm just going to play a couple minutes of our conversation because he found out the backstory on how Oregon and Liberty ended up in this game. Listen in. So I'm piecing this together based on uh, a couple of brief conversations with folks related to the Fiesta Bowl with just general knowledge of the process and, and a couple of sources. And basically, so what happens is, there were three bowls that were taken at large teams, right? The the Peach, the Cotton, and the Fiesta. And the committee is the one that assigns the teams, right? You, Oregon fans who are upset about Liberty do not blame the Fiesta Bowl. They have to take what the committee gives them. So the committee picks the playoff teams, and then they go down and do the other New Year's Six games. And they, you know, they go down in order of the rankings, and they're putting the teams – Basically, the places that make the most geographic sense, and for Oregon, obviously, that is going to Phoenix for the Fiesta Bowl. Okay, but here's the issue. One of those bowls, Peach, Fiesta, Cotton, has to host the group, the best group of five team, the highest-ranked group of five team, which was Liberty. They were one spot ahead of SMU. I think that was, uh, in some ways, as big a mistake by the committee as as the Florida State deal uh it harder to justify in some regards because uh liberty had the like you said the worst schedule smu beat a ranked team to win the american conference championship and and liberty was still ahead of them so liberty becomes the group of five team in the new year's six games so why are they in the fiesta bowl well there's basically this agreement between the peach cotton and fiesta bowls where they rotate the group of five team Right, because everybody wants power five against power five, but each year somebody's got to have power five against group of five. So, the Fiesta Bowl had a group of five team in 2018, and the Fiesta Bowl was supposed to have a group of five team in 2021, except that was the year Cincinnati from the group of five qualified for the playoff. So the Fiesta, all of a sudden, instead of having Cincinnati, the Fiesta gets Notre Dame against Oklahoma State, right? Power five against power five. Last year, they couldn't assign the Fiesta, the group of five team that it missed in 2021, because last year the Fiesta was part of the playoff. This is the first time since the Fiesta lost its group of five team in 2021 that it could basically host a group of five to kind of balance, rebalance the rotation with those three bowls, right? So the committee says, sorry, Fiesta. Liberty's coming from 3,000 miles away. Sorry, Fiesta. Oregon is ranked eighth and should, you know, maybe have a better, higher-ranked opponent. Sorry, Fiesta. Uh, you're not getting Missouri, which would make geographic sense. We're giving you Liberty because that is the way to rebalance this distribution agreement that they have between the Fiesta, the Cotton, and the Peach. The Fiesta missed its turn in 2021. 
Now they're getting liberty as a result. So that is the explanation that I've put together for why liberty is playing uh, playing Oregon. And it's really two things, right? It's why is the group of five team in the Fiesta, and then it's why is it liberty and not SMU? SMU would be a much better opponent for Oregon, right, and make more sense geographically too. But that's that's kind of the way it broke down. And, uh, you know, the group of five teams have played very well in their New Year's Six games. They've won four times against Power Five opponents. I don't know that Liberty's got what it takes. Bo Nix is playing, right? I haven't heard of many Oregon guys opting out. John Wilner there, and that's from the Conzano and Wilner, the podcast episode that just posted just a bit ago. Steven, let me ask you about this. Oregon's playing Liberty. The obvious uh, thing from the fan base uh, is disappointment. Bo Nix is going to play in this thing, which is great, and I think it's good as long as he does play. But you have you know, a 13-0 Liberty team against Oregon team that was hoping to be in uh, you know, a, a, a national championship-type conversation and instead is not. Um, how important is it for Oregon to play well in this game? I, I think they've got to come out and win this game because I think there's a lot to lose if Oregon doesn't come out and not just win the game but dominate this game. I try. See, I disagree with you, John. I, I try not to look into bowl games and take them that seriously. Now that the fact that there's a lot of there's so many players that just don't care about them and they're and they're opting out. And the bowl games, it's such an easy way to compare conferences. You know, you like everyone looks at what the records are of all these teams and all these conferences. But I feel like it it really doesn't matter. It's more of a celebration of the entire season. So, like, I expect Oregon to win. I, you know, I don't I don't think Liberty's really that good of a football team, and I think Oregon can send out their second unit and they can win this ball game. But I don't think it's really going to be that catastrophic if they lose because they're heading to the Big Ten. Like, they're already in the conference they need to be in next season. They're not fighting for a spot. You know, like Oregon State would be. So I just I don't think it's that big of a deal if Oregon were to no show this game. I think the bigger one just was they lost to Washington again. Are they going to beat Washington next season? I think that's just the more important question. Like, how do you match up against teams like that? Because you're going to be playing teams like Washington rather than Liberty. You know, going into next season all the time. So, like, yeah, I guess it's sort of important, but at the same time, not really catastrophic if Oregon just did no shows. Like they've no showed before in bowl games, and it really hasn't made that big of a difference. I, I think this is big, and I th- and part of it is I think it could be really embarrassing if they lose the game because I, Liberty's just not very good. And the point spread, though, is is all sorts of wrong. If Oregon shows up to play, they're going to win this game by more than 15.5, which is the current spread that's out there. They're going to win this game by 21-plus, and they may just embarrass Liberty because Liberty's not seen a Power 5 conference team. Now, it's not just that Liberty hasn't played a good Power Five conference team. They haven't played a Power Five conference team. They've played nobody. They've stuck themselves in the Conference USA, played that conference schedule, beating teams like Western Kentucky, New Mexico State. They've been 13 and 0 against that competition. But this is nowhere near what the kind of football that they're used to. I, I actually think that game's going to be like 42 to 7, 42 to 14. Like if Oregon shows up to play, and I think they will. I think they will. Even if fans don't show up, I think Oregon will show up. But I think that spread's wrong, and the only reason the spread isn't, you know, 21 or 28 is because there's some doubt over, you know, will Oregon have some guys opt out or whatnot. Now, now Oregon State is a different case. Oregon State's playing Notre Dame in the Sun Bowl. That spread opened with Notre Dame as a 10.5-point favorite. It's now Notre Dame minus 8.5 
And I am puzzled by that movement of the line because Oregon State has had the Arnold brothers you opt out. They're transferring. They're in the portal. You have Aiden Childs getting in the portal. DJ Uyengalele is getting in the portal. Uh, Velling's getting in the portal. And the spread should have been going the other way. What do you think is happening with the Notre Dame-Oregon State point spread? I don't know because I'm with you. It, it seems like Oregon State is losing a lot of guys, and Damian Martinez is not going to be playing this game as well. Like, that's another guy. I mean, I, I the one thing I think going for Oregon State is, yeah, they're losing DJ Uyunglele and Aiden Childs, but they're going to be filling him in with Ben Branson, who – as we know, isn't terrible, right? Like, usually when you go third-string quarterback, you think, oh, man, this guy sucks. He's not very good. Gil Branson, he's serviceable, and he showed last season they can win some ball games with him. So I think that's the one thing that you look at if, you, if you're rooting for Oregon State and you're betting on him. It's like, all right, well, maybe, you know, the third-string quarterback who has won some football games before, like, he's not going to be you know, wide-eyed when he goes and plays Notre Dame. So I think that's the one thing you can take away and say, well, maybe that's why you think Oregon State, but – I'm with you. With all these guys that are out for Oregon State, just the whole you know coaching turmoil that they had with Jonathan Smith leaving and now all these transfers out, I don't know how Oregon State really competes in this game, but it should be uh, interesting to see. You know, Gold Branson, I think, going forward, he, I mean, he may be the starting quarterback for the Beavers next season. You talk about a guy who's played the long game. Ben Goldbranson goes 7-1 and one as a starter last year, shows up this year, gets through fall camp, puts in all the work, doesn't get to play, sits, you know, he's essentially, you know, relegated to third string, stays with the team, is there all year, and here he is about to start his second straight bowl game for Oregon State. Like, and, you talk importance, yeah. John. I think that this game is super important for him, especially. Like, if he has a nice game, why would he ever think about leaving Oregon State? Like, you could be the starting quarterback for the Beavs going into next season. Yeah, and given what is going on there with, you know, some uncertainty. And I think, too, you know, Ryan Gunderson, the new offensive coordinator at Oregon State, he they, they have to be out looking for the guy at quarterback, not just for next season, but the guy, a guy they can keep for a couple years, like if you're Oregon State. And, you know, and I find it really interesting that Oregon State has settled into this area in college football. Like, I kind of was curious to see where they would fit as a program after Jonathan Smith. Like, will they, you know, they're not quite a Mountain West school. They're not quite a Power 5 school. You know, are they in a, are they a tweener? And I kind of am interested to see, will they get a quarterback that maybe is a fallen star? From the from the Power Five, will they get a quarterback that you know a lot of people wouldn't think that they could get because they're you know they're Oregon State and there's going to be a big opportunity, or will it go to a guy like Goldbrinson who can come in and is a proven commodity? I I just don't know. And given what we've seen with the portal, I know a lot of Oregon State fans are really discouraged by what they're seeing. I think you have to understand that a certain amount of defection was going to happen no matter what. No matter what they did, even if Jonathan Smith stayed, there was going to be some defection at Oregon State. So you can't quite look at it as, you know, oh, this is the coach is gone and everyone's gone. Like, there's a chance the Arnold brothers were getting in the portal anyway. There's a chance that DJ or Aiden Childs, one of those guys, was going to get in the portal anyway. One or the other, not both. But here you are in this situation that's a worst-case scenario. I know it's hard to watch. I know some people are looking on 
Twitter. I don't know if you've seen the photographs of the Goodwill in Corvallis, allegedly. Jonathan Smith's gear is in the Goodwill. Like, you know, is it his gear? Is it not his gear? I had somebody on social media reached out to me, DM'd me, said, oh, I found all this gear, and then they were posting the photos of it. I don't know if it is or isn't. The, and, and frankly, it's a little too gossipy for, for me. But I, I think it's been really discouraging for Oregon State fans. And what I'm really curious to see, when the dust settles in the portal, more than 1,200 players now in the portal, when the dust settles there, will they get a guy at quarterback who's a little better than the Mountain West guys, because that's where they're that's where they're slotted right now as a program, and you can tell they're slotted that way by some of the non-conference scheduling that's going on. People are viewing Oregon State as kind of a Power Four B school. They're not really viewing them as a Mountain West school, which I think is beneficial to Oregon State. Take the win there. Looks like everybody's going. Hey, if I, if you play Oregon State next year, it's better than playing. Fresno State, which is a win because the fear of Oregon State fan is that you're truly relegated to the Mountain West, which I don't think you are just yet. So it it really does come down to can Ryan Gunnarsson, the offensive coordinator, get a quarterback that is a little better than everybody expects him to get? And so Gulbrinson, I mean this with all respect, like there's a he's the he is the you know the guy, the benchmark, so to speak, at Oregon State. Can they get someone who can come in and be as good as him or better for a couple seasons? And if you have Ben Goldbrinson at quarterback and Damian Martinez at running back, you're not in a terrible position if you can build around those guys. You need an offensive line. You need a defense. But Trent Bray and Oregon State, they've got unprecedented work in front of them. I think it's going to be one of the most interesting and challenging projects in all of college football for next season. People are talking about what a rebuild it'll be at Michigan State for Jonathan Smith. And, you know, look at what he ran from. You know, he ran away from Corvallis. There's just no way around it. And I like the idea that you've got a coaching staff at Oregon State that kind of has got a little chip on its shoulder. And, you know, I got a hold of the letter of agreement between Oregon State and Trent Bray. He's got a $6 million buyout in year one. He's going to be making $2 million a year. He's getting a country club uh, membership at the Eugene, or excuse me, the Corvallis Country Club. He's getting the use of a car. He's getting a you know luxury suite for his family with tickets and all the normal things you would expect. And I and I'm kind of looking at that and I'm going, okay, they're saving some money on his salary, saving a couple million bucks a year on his salary. What's Oregon State going to do with that money? You know, are they going to reinvest it or are they just going to save the money? That's going to be an important question. And, moving forward. And wouldn't that scream, they're trying to save money, and I feel like that's got to be for a quarterback, right? Like like you said, it, no offense to Goldbrands, like we said. He's a solid player. He's fine, but he screams Mountain West to me. It's very uninspiring if you're going into the season with Ben Goldbranson as your quarterback. You have to bring in somebody and have at least a competition because that's what we th- said going into this year was if you came into the season with Ben Goldbranson, like – what is your ceiling? What's your true ceiling with this Oregon State team? And we saw even with DJ Uyunglele, it was eight wins. With Gobranson, what is it? Six wins? Five wins? Like, I, I just feel like it's going to be very uninspiring if you're bringing in Ben Gobranson as your starting QB and there's really no competition. Unless so, he's taking a huge step forward. But, uh, yeah, I guess. I guess that would be it. But I just feel like... He was 7-1. and one. I mean, but he was 7-1 with a really... Him, yeah, no, he was 7-1 with a really good defense 
in a really good run game. And they and will not that have, They will not have the defense that they had that year. And I would argue, you know, Dave Martinez is great, but the offensive line won't be as good as next season as well. So they need to yeah. upgrade at quarterback over Will Branson, going in trying to stay relevant if they're really trying to stay out of Mountain West. I keep thinking about Jonathan Smith leaving Oregon State. I got to be honest. I think the biggest loss is Jim Mahalchek, the run game offensive line coordinator. He is the biggest loss as he leaves Oregon State. That was the guy, like, if you were going to lose the whole staff and keep one guy, Mahalchek would have been the guy to keep. Uh, And he's going to Michigan State. All right, Anna's going to pop in the studio. We have the 5 at 5. Punch it audio still ahead. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna is in the studio, and let me tell you, she's got on leather pants, ladies and gentlemen. You look like a '80s rocker with the leather, black leather pants, uh, and uh, you look uh, you look like you're ready to have a guitar in your hands over here. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's the look I'm going for. A pickup for the kids <laughs> at elementary school with the leather pants on. They're pleather. I like it. It's a good look for you. I couldn't pull it off. You know one of the silliest terms that has come into our culture in the last five years or so? Pleather? No. Well, <laughs> no, that's been around. But, like, the new version of that is vegan leather. That's what that is? Yeah. That's okay, I, know, I didn't know that. Vegan leather. There, I am one of these people that hears stuff like that, <laughs> and I don't connect yeah. what vegan leather is. So you're saying it's not real leather. Well, like for a kid who, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you just called it pleather. But now they call it vegan leather. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. And I think it's Uh. the funniest, weirdest term. Let's just avoid calling it what it is and make it sound as cool as possible. Vegan leather. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Well, because like who wears real leather pants except for like motorcyclists? I, don't you know, know. I thought they were leather. Hell's Angels. You could have got away with saying it was leather. Yeah. Yeah. Very stylish. Oh, very stylish for a Friday at uh, school pickup. Good you know, for you. what was funny is when I, I'm sure your listeners will really want to know this, but when I put them on this morning, um, if you've ever worn pants like this, I haven't. No. They can squeak. So I, I put them on. <laughs> I was like getting ready to go out the door, and I realized I took like five. Yes, that's what I sounded like. I was like, wheat, 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 wheat. And I was going to volunteer at the kids' class this morning, and I was like, I'm going to go in the class with a bunch of like seven and eight year olds, and they're going to think I'm farting. They're going to giggle. Because they're all about the potty talk, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, how do I solve this? So I had to like. Oil the pants. No, down. you didn't. You put some Crisco on those babies. I, I, I put some like body oil on the pants just to see if that would keep them from like making that noise, and it worked. Oh wow! Yeah, you learn something every day. Mm-hmm. That's why yep. people come to this show yep. so they cannot squeak. Follow I, me for tips. I don't know, uh, Stephen. <laughs> did you wear corduroy pants when you were a kid, or was that uncool by the time you got to school? Uh when I was like really little, yeah, I remember wearing it. Okay, but corduroy hung around a little bit in my generation, probably a little longer, like sixth grade maybe. And my parents had me in some corduroys. 
And it was the same thing. As you're walking around school. Well, that was just like the friction, right? Because of the texture. Yeah, the pants is just the... You know, as a grown-up, I don't know, do they make corduroy pants anymore for, like, grown-ups? They, they tried to make a come. I've They're kind of trying to make a comeback in the last year or so. I University think. of Oregon should wear corduroy uniforms. That'll be nice. Why not? Why not? It's probably on some, like, Nike designer's, uh, you know, sketches right now. That would be not a bad idea for the bowl game against Liberty. Uh-huh. Put them in some corduroy Dan Lanning on the sideline. And some and some, pair. And you know, some vegan And then the linemen, they had the little tag that was on the back. Yeah, here was the other thing that we had. They don't do this anymore because it would be shaming kids. Yeah. Um, they used to have your size oh. out there for all the world to see. Where? On the back label of the pants. It would say what your size was. And it was you'd wear it on the outside. Everyone could see your what? size. Yeah. No. Yes. Yes. On the corduroys? On the label. Yes, corduroys and jeans. And they had the label. And if you were kind of a heavy set kid, it stopped being a number and it would just say husky. (laughs) No. Yes. No one ever wore pants that said husky. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And they got made fun (laughs) of. I'm from a tougher generation. And the (laughs) listeners who are of my age, you know, we put it out there. We knew you were a husky. Why not put it right on the jean? It said Husky. My friend Jerome Anderson, he had, he was you know a Husky guy in the high school. He ended up playing on the offensive line. Yeah. His little tag said Husky on it. I like how as you're telling this story, <laughs> you keep reaching behind you, <laughs> grabbing my tag, grabbing where my tag would the area be. Area where the tag would be. I need to go get a pair of corduroys <laughs> and see what size I'm in right now. I might be in a Husky now. All these years later. But, uh, you know, back in the day, it was like you'd have a 24, you know, yeah. you're a skinny kid, whatever. And, and then they, were, they had numbers that went all the way up to Husky. Huh. And Husky was with a Y. Husky, right. not I-E. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Like, whose idea was that? You were wearing, like, European I don't even, clothes? I don't even. I was European in the fourth grade. In the fourth grade? I was in the fourth grade. I don't know. Kind of bougie. I don't know what <laughs> size I was. All I know is once you get, like, and, and our youngest daughter is this way as well, I've noticed. Once you get kind of a hole in your pants and, like, at the knee area, let's say you've been, like, playing around the playground, you get kind of a yeah. area that gets worn out. Mm-hmm. Um, she tends to not leave the hole alone. <sighs> yeah. And it ends up being a full blowout, like, at the knee area. Yeah. Mine were the same way. I would come home from school sometimes and I look like... I was wearing an Earl Campbell jersey that was hanging off, like tearaway jersey with my pants, because there was a hole, like a six by eight hole in my knee area or whatever. When you ruined jeans, you ruined them. Okay, back to what I originally. Who's Earl Campbell? <laughs> Steven, do you know? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, am Brutal. I ruining the moment? Because Brutal. I, I can't be the only one who doesn't know. Brutal, right? Anna. This is one of these moments where I'm like, you know what? Look Why what is I have she to on deal. a sports show? Why, they call it vegan leather? Is that what they say? <laughs> this is what I have to deal with. Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell, great running back, Houston Oilers. Yeah. Uh, epic scene that's in my mind from, like, I'm going to say 1984-ish. Okay. Is Earl Campbell running, tearaway jersey, opposing defenders ripping it off his shoulder mm. pads as Earl Campbell uh, lumbers down the field. How am I supposed to know that? Get with it. 
I'm learning about, you know. You don't vegan, research for the show? Come on. Vegan leather. You learn about Earl Campbell. You're not researching and 1980s running backs? Meet me halfway here. Uh, we were at Dave Chappelle last night. He made a visit to Portland. He was at the Moda Center. And uh, Chappelle, um, he's a showman. He's a good storyteller. He's a fantastic comic. Anna, any other takeaways? Um, uh, just that. I mean, it's like, you know, when you watch the Olympics and you're watching an athlete perform at the highest level of, you know, competition worldwide, you go to Broadway show and you're seeing a performer on stage who is the best at what they do. Yeah. It's kind of that same feeling. It's like, whether you agree with, you know, his humor, his takes, whatever, um, he is masterful at the construct of humor and like it's one of the hardest things to do i'm like i we're sitting here in the moda center and it's jam-packed i don't know if it was sold out but look like it thousands of people are there look like about a the largest crowd that'll be at moda center this nba season <laughs> that's what it looked like to me well and it's like think about like how many of us have the ability to walk onto a stage in front of a live audience of tens of thousands of people like that and pull it off as if it's nothing. No, as if you're no just notes. having a conversation in your living room. No notes. No notes. Just riffing. Yeah. But, you know, he's doing his routine. He's funny. Um, he's great, great storyteller. But you're right. Like when you talk about that watching someone do what they're born to do. It's like watching Tom Brady at his prime play quarterback. It's like watching, uh, you know, Venus and Serena Williams play tennis. It's Tiger Woods on a golf course. It's Eminem rapping. Dave Chappelle is, you know, whether you like what he's his comedy or not, he makes some people uncomfortable, but intentionally so. He's um, he's good at what he does. It's it, you're watching somebody do what they're born to do. Well, and because we're nerds, you know, we sit there during the performance and we're analyzing his humor. It's like, okay, how did he set that up? Oh, okay, so that joke was funny because it was contrast. It was, okay, that joke was funny because there was a surprise there. And then he rolled out another layer of humor after that for, like, the second or third chuckle. It's like, I, I am really into, like, why is it funny? Because... I, I don't I, I could never achieve that. Funny uh, humor is the hardest thing to write. Yeah, that's the hardest part of writing is to be funny. Some people can never do it, and it's a hard thing because it's all about setup. And he his whole thing is about setup. He was it was great. And then the people that were in the crowd, it was really interesting. Before the show, they kind of went around and they were just flashing the camera around. And uh, and you know, and Dominican Sue is in the crowd. And, you know, NFL uh, defensive tackle. And then, you know, Joe from Beaverton's in the crowd. And we just saw a lot of – I saw a lot of familiar faces. I saw people that – it was very interesting crowd. Like, I didn't know who was going to show up for this yeah. either. That was part of it. Like, you know, I was like, who comes to Moda Center to see Dave Chappelle? And people, I think, that, like before the show, they said, who came from more than an hour away? There was a huge roar. Mm -hmm. So I got the impression that there might be some people from Seattle and like as far north as Seattle who made the drive to see Dave Chappelle or came up from Eugene to see Dave Chappelle. Well, and the crazy thing, too, is on the way in, 
We've only ever been to one other show where they did this, where they take your phone and they hand you this bag. Oh, yeah. And the bag has a lock on it. So everyone walking into the show has to stick their cell phone into this bag that has a special lock. It's like the kind of lock that, you know, is on a piece of expensive clothing at can't the department it. store. You can't I open tried. it. I tried. I tried to open it. You of can't course open you it. Did. And so the idea is he doesn't want anyone recording any portion of that live show. Like, I get it, but it was really uncomfortable to not have access to my phone for two and a half hours. Yeah. It caused a problem because one of Anna's friends was meeting us at the arena, and our phones are all locked up. <laughs> Where How are we supposed to do this? And it reminded me of my life before cell phones. Yeah. Because I didn't get my first cell phone. Now, I want you to think about this if you're listening. When did you get your first cell phone? Steven, how old were you when you got your first cell phone? I was a junior in high school, so that would be, what, okay. 16, 17? Yeah, it was a timely fashion. Anna, how old were you? 19. I was 28. <laughs> okay. What we had to do back in the day. around the same time. No, I was 28. That's a big, big difference. 28 to 19 is a huge difference, Anna. She meant like a year. Enormous. Enormous difference in age. Okay. (laughs) So let me, I don't care about the year. I'm talking about how old you were. Okay. Okay. Because I'm talking about in my 20s when you're in prime going out years. Okay. Okay. This is what we had to do. We had to say to our friends, hey, Stephen, I'm going to go to Moda Center. If you don't find me at Moda Center during the Dave Chappelle concert or whatever his act, meet me afterwards at uh, you know so and so bar. Name a bar. Um, uh, I don't know. Come on, one of you guys. Uh, name a cool place that I would be hanging out. I got nothing. All right. Yeah, we're not cool. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not cool. Yeah, I'm not the bar guy. Really? Great. Like all the places I thought of were what. Yeah, close. I was. Yeah. All right. Just name a place. Just give a fake name. I don't care. Saucebox. All right. You're, you it's meet me at Saucebox after the concert. If you don't find me at Saucebox, call my mom. Okay, <laughs> from a payphone. I'll call her and tell her where I'm going. This is what we had to do. It was like Hansel and Gretel. Dropping breadcrumbs. How did we ever find one? I mean, we. You were 19. You didn't have to do this. You got your phone. I was. I had to live, <laughs> like like we lived last night with no phone. My phone was in a bag last night. I feel like you're like Abe Lincoln telling me how you had to do your homework. You really had I to choose your friends. Away. You really had to choose your friends like thoughtfully yes. because you had to go out of your way to figure out how are we hanging out. Because I would have just given up. Like you know what? Yes. Uh, I can't hang out with you. You guys are spoiled. Stephen got his phone in high school. You're not giving him crap for that. It, no. Like he didn't have to live through that. He had to live through it. Neither one of you had to. In high school, you're not really hanging out. Like you know, you're all at school. It's not like you had to be like, where are you? I'm at school like you. No. This was the reality that we had in our early 20s, okay? Uh-huh. Our prime going out years. And so sometimes did it just not work out? It didn't work out sometimes. But a lot of times, you know, you were you just realized you were on the same wavelength as your friends because you'd go, I'm going to go to spot A, then spot B, then if you don't find me, call mother or whoever that person is. <laughs> There was always somebody or somebody. Yeah, there's a a relay. relay. And usually it was like someone's mom. Call my mom. I'll call her from a payphone. Tell her what I'm going to be. You call her. She'll say, oh, he's over at Saucebox. That's how you found each other. Are you sure? Yes.
This is like most people did this, or were you? I mean, most people. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> what? I lived it. What if I your mom what didn't did. answer the phone or something? Like then you're then you're host. You're on your own for the evening, and you know what? Well, it then was... you leave a message on their answering machine. So you had to coordinate with your mom, like, "Hey, mom, like I'm going out tonight. Here's the plan." Mom, but that's why the mom a, was the real. No, here's what she was. Home. Here's what you did, Mom. I'm going bowling, okay? But later, I leave bowling, and I know my friends aren't going to be able to find me. I call my mother from a payphone and say, hey, "Mom, if Chris calls you, tell him I went to the movie theater." Hold on, you were 28 years old and using your mom no, as the excuse me. I was 28 when I got my phone. You're not <laughs> tracking the conversation. This is driving me. Crazy. I kind of thought the same thing. Oh, I see. <laughs> Before yeah, you got yeah. After I got my phone, I used my mom as the relay. <laughs> he had moved out. He had it out loud. <laughs> Those leather pants are cutting off your circulation now. <laughs> to my brain. Okay, so when you were twenty-seven, before no, you had no, no, no. When I was twenty, I'm twenty in this in this hypothetical scenario, in this reenactment. I'm twenty years old. Okay. I'm leaving the house or I'm going out somewhere. And it wasn't always my mother. I'm just using that as an example. Could be like a roommate that's staying home for the night. You go out. You go a place. You, you have to tell your friends, meet me at place A. If I'm not at place A, I'm at place B. And then maybe you go to place C, but nobody knows you're going there. So you call and you say, hey, if, if Chris calls you or whoever. Yeah. Jennifer. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, Ashley. Probably. Yeah, Ashley Brittany. calls Brittany. Brittany. Yeah, one or the other, probably all of them. If they call, <laughs> if they call, let them know where I'm gonna be. Okay. For crying out loud, this is the life I'm living right now. This is where, because I'm your wife and I know this won't end until I empathize <laughs> with you, I say, John, that must have been really. It was hard. really hard. <laughs> it was hard, and you know what? I snapped right back into it. I was like a Navy SEAL who had been removed from the Navy SEAL training. Yeah. Last night when they put the phone in the bag, I went mm -hmm. right into it. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know this. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I know how to do. Yeah. I know how to do this thing without a phone. Right. Most. I don't know if you guys know how to live without a phone. I was lost. Yeah. Lost. I saw it. Yeah. You were kind of looking I around. Like, uh, I felt like an appendage had been cut off my body. The most interesting thing was at the end of the night they said, "Go outside the arena." <laughs> And then they'll unlock the bag yeah. once you're outside of the arena. But the people leaving the arena with the bag locked all had the same expression on their face. They were nervous about leaving the arena and not having the bag unlocked. Yeah. And then there was a line, and it was like a bunch of crackheads. It wasn't a line. It was a mob. Yeah, it was, it was like, like a, a bunch of crackheads yeah. around a, you know, like a feeding yeah, trough it was of like crack. Lord of the Flies. And it was... You know, getting their phones unlocked. Everybody had the same. Unlock my phone. Gollum. Yeah. Gollum. 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 There you go. <laughs> Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love the listeners of this show. You know I love you if you're out there and you're listening. As we're talking about our phones, when did you get a phone? Calls start to pour in. we got lines open, 503-417-7575. Anna's coming up with the 5 at 5 in her vegan leather pants. Uh, that'll be coming up here in just a moment. Bob's in Tigard. Bob, what's on your mind? Well, 
you struck a nerve with me. I didn't get a cell phone till my mid forties. So I went through paper route, dating, army, UPS with most of all of that with no phone, using pay phones, uh, going to my friend whose dad worked for the phone company and had 10 phones. But before I had a cell phone, we uh, UPS gave us a pager. And mm -hmm. I didn't, never had a pager before. I have a package exercise machine. And um, I was afraid of dogs. The doggy door was like humongous. So I'm not going to go in the backyard. I leave a note. They tell me to put it in the garbage can. I go, I got to get rid of it. I go in the backyard, and I'm way in the back because I'm afraid the dog's going to get me. And I set off an alarm, scares tar out of me. I run, leave the exercise machine at the back door, get into my truck. I'm wiped out. I'm driving down the street. And the same noise goes off, and I figure out it's my pager. <laughs> so I, I call it. in my boss and tell him, don't you ever do that to me again. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know what? When I got to uh, my last newspaper job, I walked in on the first day, and they handed me a pager. You know? Yeah, I put, remember those? I put it in a drawer, and I never looked at it again. I don't know. It's probably still in some drawer. <laughs> That is locked away in some uh, office building. Uh, Phil's in Vancouver. Phil, what's on your mind? Oh, you, you bring to mind a story that I lived a long time ago, like 50 years ago. I was in the Army in Europe. I and my buddy were going to go to, to Spain, and we told the couple, we'll meet you at the French-Spanish border on this day at this time. Yep. And we met him. I don't know how in the world we did it without a cell phone, but we met him. That's, that's how we did it, huh? Exactly. That's it? That's all you said? And you found each other? <laughs> what was that? Well, why was it that you were meeting this couple? They, we, were gonna, they, we were all going to travel down to Spain in my Volkswagen Beetle for I two weeks. That. So where did you meet this couple? At the French-Spanish border. No, but where did you meet them before that? Oh, we, <laughs> like, knew, that. we knew them in school way okay. years before. In all the right, States, so, you, in the so you said... Just the border in general, or did you have like a spot at the border? Well, there's a there, there's a road crossing near Barcelona, you know, okay. the main highway. And you said so at we this told time, the main highway on this day at this time, and they were there. I love that. We, you know, you had to have a plan, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah, it worked out good. Oh, it was a great trip. You had fun. What was the best part of that trip? Um, probably seeing you know the Roman Roman the Roman um. Ruins out down Spain, down the Spanish coast. You know, it was amazing. I never realized the Romans were so in, you know involved along there. Yeah, and it goes back two thousand years. I mean, it's just astounding, astounding. Quite an empire. Appreciate yeah, it you. was. It was. There you go. There you go. Uh, we had to have our act together. Not like these millennials. There's a lot of trust that has to be involved here. I like how I'm like in kinship with guy. 50 years ago on the border of Spain on this one. It's making me question myself. Um, but that's true. He may, he brings up a good point. I'll be here at this time at this place. Or you know what happens? You're just kind of wandering. Yeah. You know? So you had to have, you had to be, uh, you had to, you know, be punctual. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, like, it wasn't like you could text and be like, I'm running five minutes late. Yeah. My my uh, GPS tells me I'll be there at, you know, one fifteen and 30 seconds. No, no, no. You had to have your act together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And then all yeah. this mobile entry stuff at the stadiums. This what? Mobile entry. When you go to the stadium, oh. now you have to have your phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm telling you, Anna, you're having <laughs> you a said, you're having a day. I thought you said injury. I was like, what? I said entry. Okay, entry. entry. There are some mobile, mobile entries though. Yeah, I love mobile entry. You go to no, but I don't. I liked having a ticket. <laughs> I liked knowing I was at an event. Yeah. And having a stub. Yeah. That said I was at said event. What, did did you a, collect the stubs, though? Mine just ended up in, like in my pockets the next day, and I forget I, about them. I got news for you. Right outside this studio, I got ticket stubs on a shelf in a box somewhere. I haven't opened it You're in years. You're one of those people. <laughs> I haven't opened it in years. But there's some ticket stubs somewhere in this house. I'm telling you. In the studio. Not mine. Yeah, but yeah, because why? You had a phone when you're 19. Oh, I didn't have a phone till I was 19. <laughs> Last night at Chappelle, they took the phone after mobile entry and wrote down our seats on a yeah, piece of paper. Yeah, what was the point of that? I still have that piece of paper. You better keep that. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Anna's here. She's all kinds of fired up for the five at five. We've got Punch It Audio yet ahead. Some awards are out. Heisman Trophy will be announced tomorrow. But the Coach of the Year Award, among others, coming out. We'll get an update on all of that. Part of it is punch of part of uh, 5 at 5. Can I say that again? Part of that as the 5 at 5. This is our vegan letter. Leather. <laughs> are you having a stroke? <laughs> You okay? Do you ever have a moment like that where you just the words don't come? Yeah, mostly vegan, not leather. When I'm broadcasting, I uh, <laughs> I actually think you're the best I've ever seen on air oh, with not tripping over your words. Yeah, but I had like I had bad nights. Mm-mm. Like I would have. If you knew there was like a real tricky name, usually it was like a Russian name. Or an Indian name. You're a Tawanya. Something like that, you know? If I knew I had that coming up, I'd be so focused on trying to pronounce that correctly that I would just massively screw up everything else in the sentence. When you see news bloopers, do you think of them differently than others, maybe? Totally. I'm like, oh, that could have happened. Oh, that did happen. You just, there's so many moments where you're on air. But I'm being honest. I'm not blowing smoke at you here just because you're wearing your leather pants into the studio today uh you are the smoothest oh. broadcaster i have ever seen wow you just had a delivery you have a way of talking you always seem in control Thanks. i'm like one sentence ahead of myself at all moments <laughs> you know i and it's part of the beauty of the show like i know the listeners are in on it like, we just don't know what's going to happen. Like, I had no idea we were going to talk about... I don't know where my brain is going to go. I, no, I didn't know we were going to talk about phones. No, I know. No idea. No. 
you know, but we did. Try it over the weekend. I offered my mom the other day, okay? She came to visit. Mm -hmm. This is a 77-year-old woman, okay? She's got her phone. She's way into her phone, way into, like, who posted what on Facebook, you know? What's going on on eBay, you know? Like, <laughs> and uh, she, I offered her $100 if she would let me have her phone and put it in a drawer for 24 hours. She was like, nope. Like not for a hundred bucks, Stephen. A hundred bucks? Would you do it? Yeah, take my phone right now. I, right now? Yeah. Give me hundred bucks too. Yeah. My mom was like, "No, I don't think so. I don't think I can do it." Because <laughs> I just want to see what could what would you do without Facebook, Mom, for twenty four hours? You know, I called my parents today. I don't know if you had this experience. I just called them out of the blue. Yeah. Right before the show. Just, hey, that, what are you, what are you doing? They were in line at McDonald's in the drive-thru. Okay. My dad's like... Speaking my, my language. My dad's like, hold on. I need to order my sandwich. And I was like, sandwich? What are you at? Where are you at? Togo's? Subway? You know, and he's ordering like a hamburger. Uh, on, well, I said to my mom, I got to go. I need to go now. All right. Here we go. The Five at Five. The Five at Five. Vegan Leather Edition. Number one. Kalen DeBoer, college football's coach of the year. 2023 Home Depot coach of the year. Just announced this afternoon. Good for him. Good season. Undefeated. Really hard to argue with uh, Washington's success on the field. They are um, a smashing success this year. They are in the semifinal I, I think it's one of these years, like, sometimes you look at teams that get to the semifinal and you go, you know what, this could be a really good building year for them. Not for Washington. Like, Alabama could look at it and say, hey, if we get here, this, these guys in the roster are getting some experience, we could be back next year. Texas could say, we could be back next year. Michigan can say, we could be back next year. Not Washington. They've got Michael Penix Jr. It's win now. Washington. This is their opportunity. It is a, uh, 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 you know, the windows open, climb through it opportunity. Kalen uh, DeBoer, good year, but let's see what they do with this postseason. Number two. Staying with news out of Seattle. Is this a ruse? Seahawks trying to stay alive in the playoff race. Now there's uncertainty about the health of quarterback Geno Smith. Yikes. Carroll shared an update on his health. Today, after the team held the starting quarterback out of practice before listing him as questionable for the game against the 49ers on Sunday. Questionable with a groin injury. Hey, you don't mess around with a groin injury. Uh, look, there's uh, big penalties. If you don't play a player who is questionable or you do play a player. So there's big penalties if you game that system. Mm -hmm. So I don't. I don't think that they're doing this as a ruse. I think they're doing it as a precaution. They don't want to get fined if he hasn't participated. If he truly is questionable, they have to list him that way. Um, part of this is because the league has a very strict policy because gambling and the gambling partnerships, and they want to keep sort of the integrity of the game on the level. So um, I think this is probably closer to the truth also, um, they've got a really uh, difficult game this week. Who are they playing this week? Who are they playing? <laughs> Who are they up against? 49ers. 49ers. Like, this is not a winnable game 
in the Bay Area for Seattle. So this wouldn't be a bad game to sit Geno Smith out of if he's not 100%. Number three. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Zion Williamson. Um, I don't know what to make this story. It feels like the Pelicans are leaking this story to try and throw shade on him, but... There are reports out today that uh, the Pelicans have continuously told him that he needs to work on his diet and conditioning, but that he simply won't listen. Um, this has become an issue. Uh, it's been an issue for some time. In fact, the team implemented a weight clause in the five-year extension that he just signed last season that would penalize him if the sum of his weight and body percentage surpassed 295. He's reportedly weighing in at 284. Well, um, you know how to get him in line? You start printing that husky on the outside of his shorts and embarrass him, shame him I don't into. Think you That's his jersey yeah. number, husky? Yeah, husky. <laughs> he yeah. is in New Orleans. I mean, you know, maybe he's but just enjoying the beignets. He's under the weight limit? Well, you tell me. So. He would get penalized if the sum of his weight and body percentage surpassed 295. Oh. He's weighing at 284. So you think he's over 11% body fat? I think he is. Probably. I don't know. I think that whole system is difficult. Like, I, I just would rather just see him judged on his play. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I just don't think you can look at a player like him. He needs to be heavy and he needs to be comfortable, but he needs to be in shape. Steven, is he out of shape? Um, I don't know that he's out of shape because he's always played at a big, like he's always been big, so he's used to that. But he does have to lose some weight to be effective, like to yeah. stay to stay healthy, yeah, to stay healthy, like in his career, because that that weight's gonna be too much. We've seen too many big guys get hurt in their careers. Like having that type of weight and that type of explosiveness on your knees, man, that's not gonna be good when when you're getting older. So he has to at some point, lose some weight. Like, he he did not look great last night. I said he was struggling to breathe. He was bad last night, but he's been good this season. But I think the Pelicans are just worried because they have to figure out if him and Brandon Ingram work really well together, which they've played well together this season. But if Zion can't stay healthy or if he's out of shape and he's fat, like, it's not going to work. They can't can't go forward with him. Put his body fat on the scoreboard. For every game. No, just, uh, you know, at some point, some of these guys, all jokes aside, some of these guys, like regular folks, are going to struggle with weight and conditioning. And I always wonder when you see players like Zion Williamson, what would he be like if he didn't have basketball? You know what I mean? If he wasn't in training camp with nutritionists all around him, and then a season where he is burning calories like crazy. Some of this is his habit. Some of this is his natural. But we've seen guys like, I, you know, when Caleb Swanigan left the Blazers and it ended up being a really tragic story in the end, but put on a bunch of weight, didn't look good. Um, Kevin Duckworth struggled after basketball, Trey, former Blazer. There was a celebrity game in New York with the Knicks and Raymond Felton. Everyone was mm, telling me yeah. about that because he's, I mean, he was always big, but now he's really big. Yeah, that's the comparison that's being made. It's like, is he going that route? Belton, yeah. And once basketball's over for him, and it will be at some point of Zion Williamson's life, this is his opportunity to kind of get this in line. 
after that, you know, he's in more trouble than he uh, than he knows, probably. Number four. I think this is kind of funny. So there's conflicting reports today about Shohei Otani. It's yeah. like Otani Watch. Is he in Toronto? Is he not in Toronto? Is he on his way to Toronto? There's conflicting reports. John Morosi of MLB Network tweeted that Otani was en route to Toronto. An hour later, Bob Nightingale of US Today said he was not in Toronto or anywhere He's other than his California home. Yeah. So uh, baseball fans in a frenzy watching this free agent and hoping they go to their team. My question is, like, why would he have to fly to Toronto? If he was interested yeah. in going to Toronto, he doesn't need to get on a plane. Well, I think if I'm his agent, I say, if you want to meet with Shohei, he's in L.A. We've got a suite at... Yeah, wouldn't that make a lot more sense? Yeah, we've got a suite at such and such hotel. We'll entertain all meetings there. Mm-hmm. In one place, he's not getting on a plane to go anywhere. Uh, it, not until there's a deal that is formalized. Um, I think some of this too. I know John Morosi. I think he's a really good reporter, but some of this is you're going to get fed bad information, mm-hmm. and the agents are as to blame as anyone. I was talking today with somebody about how the agents, not just in professional sports now, but with NIL and college athletes, the agents are playing this game with reporters all over the country. They're feeding reporters bad information about their clients and how they have a seven-figure deal here or a six-figure deal here, and that information's getting out there and getting disseminated over and over again. There's no way to fact-check it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, John Morosi's getting, you know, maybe he's being told by somebody that Shohei is meeting with the Blue Jays. Maybe he's not. But the other problem you have is, you know, what I would typically do in the world I'm in is I start looking, and I did this with Jonathan Smith. Um, I started looking at, um, you know, the private chartered planes that were coming out of Corvallis and Eugene. You know, is he going to East Lansing, Michigan? But the the difference is, you see a plane coming out of Corvallis Municipal Airport to East Lansing. <laughs> there's a pretty good chance Jonathan Smith's on that plane. <laughs> we have a plane that's going from LAX to Toronto. Yeah, anybody could be on that plane. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be Otani. That's hard. That's too hard to do. Um, Shohei's going to get a big number. He's going to go to a team that is willing to take a risk to sign him to a deal that may not make sense in the end. It could be a bad contract in the end. It could be Jay Cutler bad in the end. But somebody's going to take a flyer on him and give him sixty, sixty-eight million dollars a year. Number five. I'm curious what you think about this story. So, Ron Harper is upset. His son, Dylan Harper, uh, has signed on with Rutgers. Okay. He will be the second member of his family to play for the Scarlet Knights, following his brother, Ron Harper Jr. Yeah, Ron's mad at Woj. Yeah, he's mad at Woj. Why is he mad at Woj? Woj broke the story less than an hour before... Dylan Harper was scheduled to make that announcement at a news conference in New York. Mm-hmm. Harper attacked Woj on social media saying, that was some BS that you pulled today. I will catch up with you one day, I promise. Why did he get it mad? Because it's like he felt like uh, Woj stole the kid's thunder, you know? But Woj's tweet said that Harper told him that. 
No. You know, I'm I'm going back. It this is the tweet. Don Bosco, New Jersey prep guard Dylan Harper is committing to the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. He tells ESPN. He told ESPN that, or he told somebody at ESPN that. Mm-hmm. Now Ron Harper is uh, mad because yeah, you stole the thunder. I think the threat of "I will see you soon" is going way too far. Well, the brother chimed in, too, saying it was lame. It's Woj's job to report news, no? Yeah. I mean, you know, sorry that he broke a story, but I don't know. I think the problem is that Fanatics, which has given Dylan Harper an NIL deal, Mm. wanted the thunder for that. I see. There's, There's some news value in them getting to share that. I don't know. Where do you stand on that, Stephen? Is it poor form for Adrian Wojnarowski to do his job and report what he knows to the public? I No, I don't think it's poor form. That's his job, and he got it right. It, it's not like he was wrong. He didn't report that he was going to Seton Hall. Like, he got it right. He, he knew the information. It was correct. He was going to Rutgers. He, he reported it. Like, I get I get the fact that, you know, they're mad about it because you, know, you usually only commit one time, right? And you want to have that commitment. You want to have that moment, but... You know what? If you're that big of a prospect, which Dylan Harper is, he's one of the top prospects in all of the land. Like you got to keep it uh, close to the chest, then. I just I don't get it. I, so do you I, think uh, like so? We're just saying that Dylan Harper himself told ESPN that, right? He told somebody at ESPN. He told somebody at ESPN. Then he that, didn't necessarily tell Woj. But Woj gets to be the face of ESPN and report all things that are that way. Yeah, you know, tells Someone. ESPN told someone i generally don't do that i gotta hear it myself but here's where i go back a let's let's start here i mean this is a really good test a is it true true okay pass b did adrian wojnarowski have a malicious intent in reporting this first no he's just doing his job is there any harm done to dylan harper uh, only in that I guess there's maybe less fanfare around the press conference and the announcement. Did he lose any money? Fanatics Did Fanatics take some money from him? Because Woj broke the story? No. So Ron Harper quit being a parent. <laughs> or being one of those parents. That's the five at five. Really interesting story. I get it, though. I mean, there's a little bit of you want your kid to have the fanfare or whatnot. But I'm here to tell Ron Harper... You're going to get to do this in a year when Dylan gets into the portal. You get to do it all over again. You know, this is how it goes. Gets to be recruited four or five times if he wants to. you got to keep a tighter tighter lip service on your circle there. Don't. There you go. I, that's what I think. I mean, if it's getting out to ESPN, somebody obviously has loose lips there. I, I mean, I'll tell you this. Like, you know, all season long, I was in touch with Aiden Child's parents. Okay. Yeah. I spoke to them several times on the phone. I spoke to them in person several times. I've texted liberally with Aiden's mother, Aiden's father, mm-hmm. you know, all about their kid, about his where they're at, kind of thinking-wise, whatnot. He jumped in the portal the other day. Yeah. I texted mom, crickets. Right. You know? And that's fine. You yeah. don't want to talk about it, that's fine. I'm not here to report anything you don't want me to know, but I said to her, hey, if Aiden wants to come on radio, I'm here. I'm, I'd love to have a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Love to do a Q&A with him and about his time, his decision, whatnot. They're not interested, and so I leave it at that. But if she fires back, he's going to Michigan State, I'm going to report that. Mm-hmm. He's going, Aiden Childs, you know, per source, 
is headed to Michigan State. That's how the game works. And if they're mad, I would be like, I would turn to Aiden's mom and go, why did you tell me that? Mm -hmm. You know, that's my job. You know who I am. They know when they're talking to ESPN. You can't simultaneously love the glow of ESPN, but then also go, hey, we hate that ESPN broke the news. I, I just think that's kind of silly. Anna, you did it. In your leather pants. Whew. You pulled it off. Live to tell another day. All right. Leave it here. We got Punch It Audio next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 yeah. The Game. Here we are on a Friday. Uh, what are you doing this weekend, Stephen? There's no. Uh, there's just the Army Navy game and some minor college football, some Division Two football, and uh, uh, obviously the uh, lower division uh, playoffs continue with the semifinals or quarterfinals. Uh, you tell me. What are you doing this weekend? Yeah, you know, I don't know that we have a lot going on. I know um, my oldest, Lincoln, he's got a basketball practice on Saturday. Uh, we are heading to the Blazer game after the show tonight, uh, Blazers Mavericks. So as a family, a little for uh, the Vaughn family out in there. So that'll be fun. I guess that will that counts as the weekend for us. So got a Blazer game, got some basketball practice, uh, probably hang out, you know, just family stuff. I have no idea, though. Well, Blazer game, what are you looking for? For What makes a good time at a Blazer game these days? Well, they play the Mavericks, so hopefully Luka Doncic does something, you know, very Luka doncic and does something really fun that we haven't necessarily seen before. <laughs> I love that. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, that's what we're kind of looking for. I love it. I've never seen Luka play live, so, um, you know, I, I love those type of things to see him. And then, you know, from a Blazers standpoint, uh, there's probably going to be some injuries. Jeremy Grant's out. DeAndre Ayton probably going to be out. Brogdon might be out, too. So uh, it's one of those things where you just want to see Scoot Henderson and see him live, see how he looks in person. Because, you know, I, you know this, too, John. Like, it's different when you see these guys in person than you see them on TV. And so I, I'm just interested to see how a lot of these young guys, especially Scoot, looks in person. Does he move around like it's, you know, like a guy that has a lot of potential or is it a little clunky? And then, and of course, you know, let's watch Luca do something cool. That'll be fun. Uh, is the ticket worth the price of admission? I'm going to ask you on Monday well, if if it, if it delivered as an event. Because I think when the team's not great, and they're winning like 30% of their games right now, they're at a 300 clip, you got to say, is the entertainment value there? I'm going to ask you on Monday. All right, I'll be ready for it. All right, let's play some Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Marvin Harrison Jr., Heisman Trophy finalist, said he's undecided whether or not he's going to stay at Ohio State or go to the NFL. There's a report out saying he could get an NIL deal that could compete with the NFL. Punch it. Still undecided. Um, you, know, you guys know, uh, coming into this year, uh, I wanted to beat the TN North and win a Big Ten championship, and obviously I did not do that this year. So um, I think it's a great motive to come back you know, if that's what I decided to do. Because um, that's something I definitely wanted to do in my uh, Ohio State career, and not being done that yet definitely opens the door 
uh, for me to come back. But uh, undecided, really just taking it day by day at this at this time. There you go, Marvin Harrison Jr. Do you buy that, John? Because no. in the market where he would be drafted, will be about twenty to twenty-five million dollars guaranteed. Yeah, I think he goes to the NFL. It just seems like it's really. I mean, I know the the report said a competitive to the NFL, so it wouldn't be that much money. But man, if NIL's getting up to twenty twenty five million dollars, I just can't see that quite yet. Not yet, not there. But maybe this is an agent trying to drive up the NIL deals, compete with the NFL. I get why he wouldn't want. He'd be noncommittal at this point. I also am looking at Ohio State. You know, their quarterbacks in the portal. There's a lot of competition in the Big Ten. There's no guarantee that they're going to compete for a national championship next season. They still have a Michigan problem on their hands. I, I think Marvin Harrison Jr. probably goes to the NFL, barring some NIL deal that is game-changing. Coach K weighing in on football. Sometimes when you lose a star player, Mike Krzyzewski says, your team gets better. Punch it. I hear a lot of people who don't coach talk. You know, and and as a coach, what I would say about, like, when you lose a player, and obviously the most important position on a football, maybe the most important position in sport, besides the pitcher in baseball, is the pitcher in football, the quarterback. Okay, they lose their first one. The, the backup is good. And he'll be back in time when they finally play it. So the other thing about that, Danny, that I've found is a lot of times teams get better when they lose. They don't score as much. But people ante up. The the resiliency of a team is shown. And I I thought once their quarterback got hurt, Florida State showed even a higher level of toughness. They weren't going to score 36 points or 40, or, but they weren't going to let anybody score. And whatever that defense did or special teams, that that wasn't recognized, I don't think. Coach K's got great perspective. And I think it's a mistake that Florida State's not in the playoff, but I, I think you could have easily predicted this. I also think this would have been the year to have eight or 12 teams in a playoff. It's really an unfortunate circumstance for Florida State. I'm kind of rooting that Florida State wins their bowl game and claims co-national championship because college football kind of deserves it. The playoff committee deserves it. It's messy. Four is not enough to settle it this year. Some years, four would be plenty. It's not this year. But I love that perspective from Coach K that sometimes, you know, other elements of your team pick it up. But I just don't. Yeah, I I don't know, though, Steven. You're in that room. What I, do you do? I get it. I think Florida State should be in because of the record on the field. But I think it's totally crazy to say when you lose your best player that sometimes you get better. Like, mm-hmm. I think that is insane. I think in, a, in, in the best of worlds, yeah, you, it, it's going to be everyone steps up. Everyone steps around him. The defense knows they have to step up. The other, you know, the skill positions have to step up that much more. But you know what you just lost? A, a Heisman candidate at your quarterback, Jordan Travis, who, you know, would be an NFL player. You're not going to be better. They're, they're a worse team without Jordan Travis. I just think that's very coach speak of Coach K. And I think it's, I think that is, Totally wrong. But I do think that Florida State should be in based off merit of what they did. I think what happens on the field does matter. 
But to say that you're better when you lose your best players sometimes, I think that's crazy. I, I, but wasn't he saying the rest of the team gets better? Or was he saying the team gets better? I mean, I get I don't know. I took it as, you know, sometimes they get better. As a, you know, I guess you're right. I don't know. It depends on how you but, take but it. I just, here's the I, I think but yeah, basketball season's different, too, because let's say they play 30 games in a college basketball season. Let's say you lose your best player for eight games in the middle of the season. Totally understand his logic. Because in those eight games, what happens? Everybody else starts to kind of find who there are. There's more touches. There's more shots. You, you just sort of find another element. And, yeah, maybe the team as a whole is better. Now star player comes back. You're better for it. But football's a different animal. You lose that quarterback, that's, you know. Yeah, like, that's my point is that the quarterback is the position. Yeah, if they lose their running back, they could be better, right? I can, I can understand that. But you lose your quarterback, you're not going to be better. Like, just like if Washington loses Michael Penix Jr., there's no chance they would be better than what they are with Michael Penix Jr. So in basketball, yeah, you can lose your best player, and the other five have to step up because everyone's touching the ball. In football, quarterback handles the ball every single time. Buffalo Bills coach Sean McDermott is getting dragged after he went public saying he regretted mentioning 9-11 in a 2019 training camp talk with his team. Said he immediately apologized to his players. Here's McDermott apologizing for referencing 9-11. Punch it. I'm going to reference um, the team meeting that has been brought up. Uh, my intent in the meeting that day was to discuss the importance of communication and being on the same page with the team. I regretted mentioning 9-11 in my message that day, and I immediately apologized to the team. Not only was 9-11 a horrific event in our country's history, but a day, but a day that I lost a good family friend. And so with that, I'll turn it over to answer any questions you might have. McDermott had referenced how organized and focused the terrorists were in executing the attack on the World Trade Center in a terrorist attack that killed thousands of people and caused a lot of other collateral damage. It was a poor choice of words. It happened in 2019. I understand kind of the error of his ways. It was insensitive. But I'm not seeing this as like a fireable offense like some people are. You know, it, you know, it kind of feels to me like the Bills are having an underwhelming season. And this is like, let's dig up some old tweets in a way of kind of destabilizing his tenure. I don't know. Steven... How bad is this? Yeah, it's. I think it's really bad, but I'm with you. I don't think it's a fireable offense. But you are right in the fact that the Bills haven't been very good this season. It's very convenient to say, oh, well, look what you said back in 2019. And, you know, in the report that they came out, there were players that just said, yeah, you know, Coach McDermott is really socially awkward. And it was just a total miss of a connection to what he was trying to do for the team. Like, the team... The team wasn't offended by it. They knew it was a terrible – it was just a terrible analogy that he had, and they it shouldn't have been done. But they weren't, like, screaming for him to be fired or anything at the moment. They're just like, man, this our coach is socially awkward. He doesn't know what he's saying when he says these type of things. Like, he just totally missed. So I'm with you. I don't think it's fireable offense, but, man, you know, 
it doesn't it doesn't look good when the Bills now are having a bad season that you dig up this kind of stuff. It just makes it very convenient and easy to say, you know, let's fire this guy. It was a stupid thing to say, but it was yeah. four years ago. If it was a dumb thing to say, why are we hearing about this now? Oh, the why is because the Bills are not very good and they're struggling this season in a year where they should have been better. It was an insensitive thing. I also, it's not the first time I've heard someone talk about this. Go to the 9-11 Museum and they talk about the sophistication of the terrorist attack and how they got the terrorists into the country and got them into flight schools and organized themselves and ran, you know, uh, training missions. And, you know, it's evident that this wasn't just like 11 hijackers who uh, on a whim one day decided to do this. Like, yeah, we get that. McDermott never should have used it as an example to his team. I don't know that he needs to apologize for it now. He says he apologized to his team immediately after saying it. So I, I don't, I don't know. If the Bills I are just, ten and three, does this story come out? No, I don't even think it comes up. Or people go, hey, I said that in 2019. He apologized to the team. Next thing. Andy Enfield talking about Bronny James, USC. About to put Bronny in uniform on Sunday against Long Beach State. Here's Andy Enfield talking about the debut and the practice habits of Bronny. Punch it. Is the plan for Bronny to be able to play on Sunday? We assume today was his first day of contact practice. He looked good. And he has to get his timing back and get in game shape. But I thought today was uh, a good first day. It feels like a really quick turnaround. Is that just he just you know, kind of got into the swing of things pretty quickly? Well, he's been working out for some time without contact, so he's been doing cardio, weight training, and some shooting. So he's been able to do individual workouts. And so we're, uh, we're happy with his progress. Andy, was he able to do everything today in the full contact? Yes. Okay. And is there any markers he needs to clear before Sunday in order to be able to play Sunday? Well, I think it'll be a determination how he feels personally and our doctors and trainers, our strength coach, but uh, all indication he feels great. He looks good. Bronny James being healthy and on a court is a good thing. It will get covered. ESPN, the hype machine, is about to go into full-blown hype mode on Sunday. It'll be fresh off the Heisman stuff. It'll be uh, Sunday will be dedicated to Bronny's debut and eight or ten minutes spent on the court. Uh, I'm glad he's healthy. That's the bottom line. Josh Pate reacting to Lincoln Riley's comment that USC is now focused on playing defense. Lincoln Riley says the Trojans are going to change the way they practice. Punch it. It is not simply going and hiring a big defensive coordinator name and then saying, all right, well, I'm not really going to change my program. You're the change. I'm bringing you in. You make us good on defense. That's not how it works. And it's really important for you to pay attention to what he said. He didn't just say, we're going to prioritize defense by hiring the right guy. He said, we're going to evaluate top-down everything about the program. Did you notice how he mentioned the way we practice? Uh, there have long been little rumblings and murmurs behind the scenes that USC doesn't handle a football practice in a manner that puts them in the best position to do things like tackle on Saturdays. Yeah, you got to. I think you need good players. You need good coaches. You can talk all you want about practice habits, the way you practice, focusing on defense. I feel it's a little bit like the Terry Stotts era of Blazers basketball. 
where they talked about, we're going to play better defense, we're going to play better defense, we're going to play better defense. And they got a, got some better defensive players, and they played a little better defense, but you know, you need to make a commitment as a entity, not just to play better defense, but how does the defense fit with the offense as it pertains to kind of the holistic view of the offense and defense and how those things mesh, how they work together. I think one of the things that's lost on people is that during the Chip Kelly era of Oregon football, Oregon's defense performed phenomenally well with Nick Aliotti as the defensive coordinator. And part of that is just the changes that Aliotti made as a coordinator to play and coach with pace. He knew he was going to have to defend more plays. So what did he do? He said, hey, we're going to have to substitute some guys. We're going to have to find more depth. We're going to have to change the way that we play. I think USC, what they probably need to do is look back at Oregon in 2011 and say, what did Oregon do differently with Aliotti and Kelly? Because USC's offense, the way they play, it puts a lot of pressure on the defense. It's one of those things where actions speak louder than words. Like, it's easy to say, yeah, we're going to change it up and we're going to focus on defense. But I'm with you. We need to see it next season when USC plays. Because I think Lincoln Riley is a really good coach. And I still think he has a really long career if he wants it. But he does have to make some changes. Like, it was really bad this season. And to finish 7-5 and with that roster, man, that's a real big disappointment. Kirk Herbstreit says there's no conspiracy against Florida State. A lot of people mad at ESPN. Punch it. It's just if you follow the criteria of what they have, then that's what you come up with. And if we want to eliminate and change that for next year, I know there's 12 teams, that would be great. The great news is there's 12 teams next year. We'll be arguing about 11, 12, 13, and 14 next year. There'll still be people pissed off. It's just kind of the, the way the sport is. But the, the notion that ESPN or you or me or anybody is out to get Florida State, it's low-hanging fruit that people want to try to get clicks and people want to get likes. They want to get views. No, but they also they're, want they're to just, drum up. Yeah, they want to drum up there stuff is. that's not real. I agree with Herbie that there's no conspiracy. But ESPN doesn't help itself. It's a partner with the SEC. It bangs the drum for the SEC. It parades the game day show around playing favorites all the time. And I also disagree that the debate's going to be about 11, 12, 13. The debate's going to be about who is number four next year because the top four are getting first-round buys. It'll still be a debate. I don't think there'll be any controversy about 11, 12, 13 whatever, who missed it, who made it. But ESPN has to acknowledge it's part of the problem. It's not all about clicks. It's about perception. I also, I agree with Herbstreet. I don't think there's a conspiracy. But I understand why others do. Because the way ESPN carries itself sort of invites that. Well, they're so defensive with with their takes. Even like that take right there. Like Kirk is so defensive in the take, and I agree with them too. I agree with you. Like I don't. There's no, they're not holding the conspiracy, but no. the way they go about it, man, is like, hey, don't come at us. We're not doing it. Just 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 embrace it. You got to be bigger than that. You got to be bigger than that. That's Punch It Audio. We have much more ahead. You got the BFT here. I hope you are having a great week. We are headed into the weekend. We'll take a look ahead in the next segment. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
find it interesting that we're kind of in the infancy of the college football offseason. Certainly have to conclude the opening of the transfer portal on December the 4th as the beginning, kind of, even though bowl season's still going on. College football's offseason will obviously go all spring, and the portal will open a second time in the spring for another window. And then you will also have uh, the summer and then fall camp. That's the offseason. The NFL's offseason obviously will take place after the end of this regular season in December and into January, February, and uh, an NFL draft, and then uh, spring and summer with mini camps, and then the beginning of training camp. Major League Baseball's in their offseason now, seeing a bunch of moves. Um, the uh, Braves and Angels with a minor trade, including David Fletcher and Evan White and Tyler Thomas today just about an hour ago uh, but there's a lot of jockeying going on there and then you have NBA offseason and certainly July in the NBA world is a huge um, a huge uh, offseason month for free agency uh, so here's my question who has the best offseason which sports offseason is the most fun most entertaining most interesting most uh, game-changing, because I think what we're seeing in college football certainly changes that conversation. Like, I know that the portal is frustrating, but you've got teams that can be remade with the transfer portal. You've got a lot of hype that can happen with the transfer portal. Colorado last year with the portal, with like 50 new players and a new head coach, it was uh, it created like four weeks of buzz to start the regular season. You could argue that college football's off season is entertaining and interesting, but I don't know that people like it. I don't know if you're tracking me there. Like some people don't like it, but they also know it's interest interesting and entertaining. Stephen, which off season do you enjoy the most? I think I I think I enjoy the NBA off season the most. I think there's just more drama this way, like. The people, there's people on Twitter, like even the players, they'll be, you know, making comments about players, how much money they make, and stuff like that. And I, I think there's always a lot of, a lot of moves, a lot of transactions that don't necessarily like make the season, but everybody in every NBA fan base thinks it's the biggest move of all time. And so I kind of think that's kind of really funny. So I'd go, I think NBA is the most entertaining, um, but I think you're right with college football because I think that college football's offseason now with the transfer portal is the most important out of all of them, and it can really change your your program. I mean, just look at the Heisman Trophy winner or the Heisman finalist this year. Marvin Harrison is the only one that hasn't transferred. You go back and you look, a lot of guys have transferred. Uh, Caleb Williams, transfer. Baker Mayfield, transfer. Kyler Murray, transfer. Like, there are so many transfers that are the best player or win the trophy or the best player in college football. I think you can change your team on a dime. Like, I think college football is the most – uh, game-changing of all the off-seasons, and I understand why people don't like it, but, man, you can really change your program in one season. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the NBA in February, you have a trade deadline. Major League Baseball's got a trade deadline. NFL has a trade deadline. College football, obviously, it doesn't make sense to have a trade deadline. I'm going to say that, like, uh, you know, unsure that college football may keep that, but... They don't have a trade deadline, so there's no in-season opportunity to, hey, Oregon State last year, great example. Not this season, but two seasons ago at Oregon State. Oregon State needed a quarterback. Like, Jonathan Smith could have traded for a quarterback late in the year. Like, you know, he would have given up a linebacker, Omar Spates, 
who was on the move anyway in the summer in the portal, he would have given that up for a quarterback he could rent for one season that he could plug and play. Like, there's no trade deadline, but there's two transfer portal windows. Do they need two windows for college football? Do you like that there's a window December for 30 days, December 4th to January 2nd, a second window in the spring, or do you think one window is enough? I think I would prefer to have one window. I understand why they have two, and it's to help the guys that go into spring practice and they realize, man, I'm not going to play. Like, get me out of here. But I also feel like it's so there's so much transferring going on that it, it turns me off just a little bit. Like, I understand, you know, kids are going to make mistakes. There's going to be coaching changes. And if your coach leaves, yeah, I think that's okay. Then you should be able to transfer. But at some point, like, you are an adult at this situation. Like, when you're 18, you're an adult. You're making adult decisions. Sometimes you got to stick with a commitment just for a year and stick it out. So I wish there was only one, but I understand why they have two right now. Yeah, I I don't like the second window in the spring. Part of it is I think there's some value in some college kids picking uh, a place and staying there and then placing the emphasis on this window now. Now, I'll also say this. I don't like that the transfer portal window opens the Monday after the championship game. I actually think the window should be put after all the bowl games are played, but before the spring. I think it would be better if they had a window that was like February that said, hey, you can transfer. But I understand what they're saying is, hey, we we know that um, you know there's a school thing that is involved in college football, and we want players to be able to say in the winter before the, you know, the during the winter break, I'm transferring schools. So you got to kind of line it up there. I think if you were saying what is best for college football, I think you'd have one window. And I think you, that window would happen January, let's just say January 15th to February 15th. That's the transfer portal window. But they won't do it because... Kids would be like, I'm leaving my school January 15th, uh, you know, about to start a new quarter somewhere else. I just think it's a weird timing. And I know some coaches don't like the second window either. Jake Dickert came on the show and talked about that second window not being beneficial. He didn't like it, caused more unrest in his world. Because you know what happens? What happens is there's a bunch of programs that are really good that – end up coming out and going, hey, we're short. We realize in the spring it's not that the player doesn't realize they can play. They Jake Dickert was like, what those major programs, the, the true contenders realize, is they realize we need an outside linebacker. And so what do they do? They go shopping at like sort of the schools that are off the radar, like the schools that are typically ranked 20 to 30. They're looking up and down those rosters going, who can we cherry pick? And some of that happens in that second window as well. I want everyone to have a great weekend. Grab a podcast. Read me at johnconzano.com. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time. Just a good time.